Shelved by Genre, a show about types of literature and the worlds they imagine. This season, we are reading Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. And this episode is about the chapters 1 through 6 of The Shadow of the Torture. For a list of content warnings, please check the episode description. I am Cameron, and with me here, in my ancient guild, built in the husk of a rocket ship, are Michael and Austin. Hey. Hello. Well, we did it. Good app. Mm-hmm. It is a rocket ship, and that's something that I think a, a, there is at least. What is the percentage of readers? Do you think who missed that it was a rocket ship? Oh, most of them. I didn't know it until like, the third time I read the book. Yeah, I was like, wait <laughs> yeah. a second, this is a friggin' rocket ship. They they got a propulsion <laughs> chamber in the bottom, and they're torturing people in it. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> Check the episode description for content warnings again. <laughs> My <laughs> way. Yes. Yeah, that's going to be important uh, for the next uh, couple hours of your life. Um, but yeah, we're we're uh, there's a rocket ship in the mm-hmm. thing, but we'll get to the rocket ship in a minute. We're reading Book of the New Sun, and uh, it's a big, weird, complicated book. Uh, not every season of this show, which is a new show, shelved by genre, not every season is going to be about Book of the New Sun, <laughs> and not every season will be about Gene Wolfe. Um, <laughs> But this one, and for the next maybe five months or so, that's what the show is going to be dedicated to. We're going to be reading through uh, all four of the kind of major books of Book of the New Sun. That is uh, The Shadow of the Torturer, The Claw of the Conciliator, uh, Sword of the Lictor, and Citadel of the Autark. And then we will, against my desires and or wishes, be reading Earth of the New Sun, (laughs) the (laughs) fifth book that is kind of an addendum that was published afterward, which I personally, and maybe my opinion on this will change, but personally hate. Uh, and uh, I don't get the but, sense Gene Wolfe was too hot on it either. So yeah, Ooh. yeah. I just we're we're gonna find out. I mean, we'll be months in. We might be we might be like absolutely earth pilled at this point, right? You know, and we'll be all about it, and we can't wait to find out what happens on the. You know, I, I don't want to spoil too much, but some general things about the show coming up top here. I'm saying all that to say this: it's a show where we're doing media criticism. Shelf by genre, in a general sense, is doing media criticism. It's not all celebration, and it's not all negative dunking. So this is not a show where we're just complaining about the books we're reading, and it's not a show where we say, hey, golly gee whiz, you guys, this is the best books I've ever read in the whole wide world. <laughs> like, this is my this is my Coen Brothers character, the guy uh-huh. who loves the books he reads. Right, right. <laughs> Have the Coen Brothers written a podcaster yet? Yeah, I know. Uh, they've definitely oh, written yeah. podcaster adjacent. Like they've written people who today would be podcasters, but I don't know that they've <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. right. The uh, the uncle from a serious man oh, would have a podcast yeah. about that mm-hmm. that boil on his mm-hmm. neck or whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but but yeah, these are complex works. That's the whole point of doing the show. Is we're going to be reading some genre literature, books and genre. Sometimes maybe even books with pictures. Oh my gosh! Wait, what's genre? Even, what's genre literature, Cameron? I don't know. I just I, I, Michael came up with the show name. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You've been looking at this word and you're like, is it like jeans? Is it like yeah? What's Gen- yeah. Genray? Who's that? <laughs> Shelved by blue jeans. Michael, what's genre? Do you know? All right. So uh, <laughs> genre, quite simply, just means type or kind. So genres of literature 
uh, mean types or kinds of literature. And in the oldest sense of the word, this means uh, the difference between poetry, uh, typically epic. I was going to say novel, but they didn't invent novels until later. Uh, so this is actually what you need to know is genre emerges as a thought uh, to describe a very particular set of things, which is like, is the thing that I'm reading a poem? Is it an epic or is it some form of drama? Uh, as history proceeds, what genre means changes. And so today when we talk about genre, we often mean uh Something less specific than the precise form of what we're talking about uh, and something more generally describing like the uh, atmosphere, the plot concerns, the narrative archetypes, the tropes and so on that will show up. So uh, here we might be talking about science fiction, for instance, uh, as opposed to mystery, romance, horror fiction, gothic fiction, so on and so forth. So that's all one of, of the those are genre fiction is what you're saying. Yes, all of those are genre fiction. Uh, and so genre then has kind of this double duty that it pulls where it can describe basically the the content of the work. And also, right, frankly, like, uh, you know, in the old stuff, like between drama, say you have your comedy and you have your tragedy, right? That's genre as content. Uh, but then there's also discussions of genre as form. So here, I think for the most part, we're probably going to be discussing novels or at least novel-ish things. That's definitely what we're talking about today. Uh, and the genre is... Well, for this one, it's in kind of a tricky space, and we can work through that as we uh, <laughs> dig into the differences between guild halls and spaceships. <laughs> we chose a real easy one to start with. Just cut and dried, <laughs> no complications. Especially because the other thing that I think comes up when you say genre fiction is you tend to be saying, okay, this isn't, this isn't, th these aren't works that are considered literary. This is a mm -hmm. space that uh, its importance is contested. Um, in some ways, you want to elbow out room for uh, for low art to be important in its effect and, and in its value. Um, while at the same time, you want to say like, no, of course, like read the damn prose. That dude is spitting. You know what I mean. <laughs> and so, and so there is a, there are ways, and there are ways, and and we've picked one that really complicates all, all of the notions around genre fiction right away. So right, it, it's job, actually us. probably it's probably worth saying, uh, as you're pointing out, Austin, that uh, when we talk about genre fiction today, genre fiction is often said uh, as a distinguishing mechanism from what we tend to call literary fiction. Uh, I think these b barriers have broken down considerably in the mm -hmm. past, like, 15 years or, some, or so. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, the, what we call literary fiction, at least in the United States, which is stereotypically, like, uh, novels that are written up in the New York Times that are about, like, middle-aged married couples who cheat on each other or something, right? Mm. And nothing supernatural happens. There's no ghosties, no beasties, no spaceships, nothing like that. It's all like... Why would you read it? Realism. Literary realism. Oh, disgusting. <laughs> Turns out, you know, literary fiction, realism, that is, in fact, just another genre. Another kind oh of descriptor, another kind of container Get for them. saying, right. uh, here, is a, here is a breadth of texts, and they contain this type of content with these types of concerns kind of centered. Mm -hmm. That's right. Take that, Iowa. <laughs> I will say, like, <laughs> Get I, out of there here. are ways in which it's still in contest, like, contestation because you look at someone like Kazuo Ishiguro, Ishiguro who, like, uh, has written a bunch of different types of stuff, but who's, you know, uh, got kind of defensive uh, being called mm -hmm. a science fiction mm -hmm. or fantasy writer mm -hmm. not that long ago. 
you know, mm-hmm. a decade yeah. ago. Uh, Margaret Atwood, yes, notoriously, for very many years, yes. <laughs> will just write like a straight up science fiction trilogy and will be like, I just write, I write books, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, yeah. And, and so, yeah, genre is a tricky label, not just because of all the kind of conceptual stuff that Michael's talking about, but also, Austin, what you're talking about of like, it's getting caught up in this kind of economy mm-hmm. of uh, valorization, right? What gets to be valued in our culture and what does not? And Michael, as you just said, the literary fiction as its own genre is valorized and valued. And you know, Pew Pew Guns uh, in Spaceship Land is not, um, even though, you know, what has been true for forever, you know, at least going back into uh, especially the 1950s and 60s with the paperback revolution into the 70s, you know, the explosion of literature in the United States, the best-selling uh, works uh, in the United States, uh, which is mostly the the work that we're kind of thinking in, context, in context with here, specifically with Book of the New Sun, most of that work has been straight genre literature, mm-hmm. romance, Western, horror, science fiction, fantasy, all that kind of stuff. And that's what the show broadly is about. We're, we, you know, we are, as a network, Range Touch. Please listen to our other shows if you haven't already. You can go to rangedtouch.com in order to do that. You can see the link down in the description below as well. But in a general sense, we are known for, I think, deep dives into particular things, you know, sub, subfields of academic literature or, um, you know, Homestuck or Stephen King, these kind of things. And this is a show that gives us the ability to kind of bounce around still in a universe of stuff that we really like, which is genre literature, but allows us to maybe kind of focus and not have to spin up a new show from zero every time we want to talk about something new. Um, so there's a, a pragmatic reason for this show as well. Uh, for the two of you, had you read Book of the New Sun before? Yes, I read Book of the New Sun for the first time in, oh, 2008 or 2009, somewhere around there. I have read two and a half to three books of the book of the new sun of which we now are saying there are five. I know there are four and then also another one, but we are covering five books. So, uh, so, so yeah, and I, I began reading those in earnest. I, I give them a shot, um, a little after Gene Wolfe's death, after Cameron, you wrote an obituary for waypoint, um, uh, of Wolf, uh, and put, um, I was really, you know, you put his, his converse or his, his work in conversation with, uh, video games, but like that was secondary to just writing a good obit and, and explaining what we what we'd lost. Um, uh, but really, only stuck a couple of years ago, um, uh, and I was like slowly reading them at pace one every few months is like a fun little treat for myself. Uh, and then we started talking about doing the show, and I was like, maybe I should just stop so I can be the person who doesn't know everything on this show which is fun because I'm coming from doing a Star Wars show where I've been basically spoiled about stuff the rest of the cast hasn't. And so I get to play the person who's like, whoa, it's a spaceship. <laughs> they didn't know well, on I, the Star Wars show and on more civilizations there were spaceships. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, they're yeah. spaceship guys. I'm sorry. I didn't set that up for you. <laughs> yeah, you're drowning in spaceships over there. I That's really not a problem. Uh, there, there might be too many, actually. Definitely. <laughs> Uh, Well, I mean, that's also the wonder, and this is maybe like the last thing before I kick over to Michael here uh, to tell us a little bit about Gene Wolfe generally, because I think that actually, whereas for most shows and for most books, I don't think you need to know too much about the author to just kind of get going. Actually, to read Book of the New Sun, it's a little bit helpful to know (laughs) a little bit about Wolfe, but 
Um, the, the other thing to say about this this book is if you were reading along with us and, you know, by the time that this comes out, we will have said what we're reading for each episode. We'll give a little bit of a schedule and things like that to people. Um, if you want to find that, you can find that information on uh, rangetouch.com right now if you want to know, like, the next couple episodes. And uh, But the thing to note about this, uh, alluding to what you just said, Austin, is that you can read this book several times, or these books uh, several times, and still find new things every time you read, because Gene Wolfe is a notoriously tricky writer. He is someone who is really engaged with the language of writing, and is really interested in kind of playing games with his reader, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, people might be more familiar with uh, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which is a collection of three stories that are all interrelated with one another and kind of inform one another. And you kind of have to read them almost holographically, not to allude to something later on in this episode, in that (laughs) one kind of stands up some ideas that you have to then interpret through the other stories. And um, he did this a million different times, Uh, you know, the soldier in the mist and all of these different stories he did. And he's a highly, uh, so the language itself is complicated and is always kind of self-reinforming. So you read the book to understand what you read before and not just in a like, wow, what happened in the plot way? But in a, if I read a thing uh, based on what Wolf is telling me imagistically, you know, if I think, we're going to talk about the rocket ship in a bit, but if I think about what is being described when he talks about the Madigan Tower, you can work that back to be like, holy shit, they're in a rocket ship, <laughs> right? And there's no one there that ever says, and they, of course, are in a rocket ship, although I think maybe that is alluded to at some point. Um, so there's that kind of thing. The, 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 you have to kind of step outside the text a little bit to think schematically about what's being presented to you, and you can kind of come to these solutions on your own about what's actually being presented to you, even if the characters don't know about that. Mm-hmm. Which leads me to the second thing here is that Wolf is so attached to describing the world through the thoughts and feelings and emotions of characters. Um, that, that if there's a thing, if you, if there's a thing you need to know to read the rest of these books and kind of understand what's going on, uh, or read any Gene Wolf is that the point of view character who is telling us the reader about what's going on is processing information like any human being would, um, what they see and what they pay attention to are the things that they are highlighting for us, the things that they are oblivious to, uh, but that, that they might still be describing, we uh, don't get a lot of information on, right? So say if a character is not good at picking up on social cues, um, schematically as a reader, they might be describing a situation that feels in one way to us, right? It might feel uncomfortable to us, but they might not be picking up on that discomfort, right? And that's a thing that will happen later on in these books. Um, if they are not focused on, if they are perhaps a child and they are not focused on the specific information or ideas that are being told to them by someone else, if they're, say, not paying a lot of attention, they're not going to get the same thing out of what they're hearing uh, that we are. And that's going to happen with, like, Master Altan later Mm -hmm. in this very uh, episode that we are recording right now. So there's a thing that's worth saying, you know, that, that, that sometimes all gets wrapped up with a nice little bow uh, under the term unreliable narrator. And, it, you know, if you've got that term in your pocket, that's really helpful. Um, Severian, who is our narrator for the Book of the New Sun, he's our POV character. The whole book is intensely focalized around him. That We experience the world through him, and our, we are deeply attached to his thoughts and emotions. Um, he is an unreliable narrator. 
big quotation marks, um, because that's kind of useful for thinking through the book, but it's it's not exhaustive for doing it. He is someone who is not telling us the truth, and he self-inflates, and he is not a good person. And yet this book, across the whole thing, is a memoir in which he is trying to tell us about why he did certain things and why ultimately they were good. Um, and <laughs> so that means that things that we will see occur and the way that Severian thinks about those things are not necessarily what we should think about those things. And so we, I think we have to be very careful when reading the book to kind of hone in on those ideas that Wolf is always presenting across his, his uh, you know, uh, written work and then kind of thinking through the books in those terms. So that's my big spiel about how to read Wolf or at least enough to get us started. Uh, unless people have thoughts about what I just said, we can hear Michael Lutz's pocket biography of Gene Wolfe. Don't say unless people have thoughts. That's too open. You know we could stay mm-hmm. in this segment for three hours. <laughs> yeah, I know. And we're not going to. So instead I'm of saying in case people have thoughts, just say, Austin, shut up. Let Michael <laughs> do his description <laughs> of or his bio of Gene Wolfe. I'm giving you the opportunity no, to self-censor. No, I'm, exactly. <laughs> yes. I'm giving you the opportunity to control yourself. And I'm doing it, but under protest. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, let me say it more directly. Here's Michael Lutz's pocket biography of Gene Wolfe, which is kind of necessary for us to do the show. Uh, So this is going to be a fairly brief biography, and we can bring up like other aspects of Wolf's life, I think, later on in the show when they maybe become more relevant to understanding uh, what we're reading for that section. So this is just like the the most general overview. Uh, Gene Wolf was born in New York City in 1931. His family moved to Texas when he was fairly young. Uh, He was an avid reader of just about everything, uh, it actually turns out. Um, But in particular, he had a fondness for the pulp uh, science fiction and fantasy of his youth, right? In the 1930s, 1940s, that kind of the Hugo Gernsback kind of era. Um, He really wants to be a writer. He goes to college. He drops out uh, and is drafted into the Korean War where he serves. He then returns home, goes back to college again, gets his degree, uh, becomes uh, some some form. He he enters some sort of engineering job. This is a, a part of the timeline that's a little like muddy to me because the thing that most people talk about before his uh, writing becomes his full-time career is that he works as an editor uh, at a science journal called Plant Engineering. Uh, plant there does not mean uh, botanical or botany. It means uh, <laughs> plant is in like factory engineering, right? Um So he works at this uh, magazine as an editor for quite a long time, uh, and he that's his day job. And then he writes in the evenings and he's written a couple novels. He's written a couple short stories. Um, uh, But then it's really Cameron, as you say, uh, uh, The Fifth Head of Cerberus is kind of the book that I think kicks off his career, this uh, collection of three interrelated novellas. Uh, and that sets the tone for, for the rest of his career uh, in, in a big way. Now, something I've skipped over here that is super important is that Wolf has a wife. Uh, her name is Rosemary, and they are married in 1951. Uh, Wolf is uh, raised kind of nominally Presbyterian, uh, according to an interview that I read. Uh, but Rosemary is Catholic and uh, rather consistently so, sincerely so. Uh, and so uh, she and her family want a Catholic wedding. This is something that Wolf accedes to. Um, and in order to have a Catholic wedding, he has to join the Catholic Church. So he 
undergoes kind of the the process of instruction, eventually becomes convinced, uh, a convert to Catholicism, joins the church, uh, and this forms a huge backbone to a lot of his uh, kind of more philosophical thinking uh, in the works to come, and this is going to come up quite a bit in in the Book of the New Sun. Um, But that's, you know, one other thing that you really need to know is that Wolf is a, a Catholic writer and a deeply religious writer, and not just in the uh, not, uh, uh, I guess, to, to pull out like the most odious of comparisons, right? Not in like a left behind <laughs> Tim LaHaye, the other guy kind of way, right? Uh, aside uh, from Jerry the fact- B. Jenkins. What? I can't believe you were the other guy, Jerry B. Jenkins. Jerry B. Jenkins. Uh, yeah. Uh, aside from the fact that those uh, weirdos are Protestants. Um, uh, the, uh, you know, Wolf is part of this long line of kind of Catholic thinkers who, uh, uh, consider their work as, uh, sort of standing on its own in Catholicism as being the, the kind of like, I don't know, spiritual atmosphere in which it arises. Um, and Wolf does a lot of weird and obscure readings on church history that, tend to come into uh, his, uh, I guess, interpretive communities, right? The people who receive him in very interesting ways. So just as an example, many of the characters in Book of the New Sun are named after extremely obscure saints because Gene Wolfe was the type of guy who was going to like pull out the Encyclopedia of Saints or whatever and just like read that and come uh, up with ideas. Just imagining Gene Wolfe playing like a dungeon crawler, like, um, <laughs> you know, like really, really ba- bare bones, like cool, straightforward dungeon crawler and naming all his characters after various saints. And the new Etrian <laughs> yeah. Odyssey dropped and he's like, I got to get Bartholomew in this one. Got to. <laughs> Got to be my paladin. (laughs) He's absolutely that type of guy. And so we've got this really like he's just this fascinating figure uh, because he is uh, he's a great figure to start this show with because he is a person who is going to refuse what we talked about at the beginning um, of this distinction between like the literary fiction and the genre fiction and kind of like which one is more important. Uh, Because on top of like all this deep and serious thinking about like faith and like what it means to, uh, you know, be a, uh, an ethical being in the world that is going to come along with his Catholic instruction that he's trying to work out here. uh, And also all of his scientific uh, knowledge and all that background. Uh, he is working in all of these references to the old pulps, old science fiction and fantasy stories that he loves, and also, uh, like Marcel Proust. It cannot be overstated the degree to which Proust, uh, the 19th century, did, did he live into the 20th century? Cameron, do you remember his dates? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he saw an airplane. Okay, he, he had to have lived into the 20th okay. century. <laughs> so, uh, basically, you know, this kind of uh, uh, incipient, like, French uh, uh, modernist, right? Marcel Proust uh, wrote In Search of Lost Time, a massive unfinished novel, deeply uh, autobiographical about uh, kind of preoccupations of life and memory and uh, love and all sorts of other weird feelings. Uh Wolf is all over that, too, right? His style is deeply inflected by uh, pulps just as much as it is by, like, the great literature. Uh, and he doesn't really make a lot of distinctions between them. You know, the, the fifth head of Cerberus is also top to bottom filled with references to, like, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and mm-hmm. things like that. So his uh, work tends to be densely elusive uh, and also very conceptual, as you were saying, Cameron. His narrators uh, not only are narrating kind of from a very specific uh, place in their world uh, in ways that make them get labeled as, you know, air quotes, unreliable, because I also, like you, Cameron, I think unreliable has a lot of baggage with it that 
maybe doesn't quite apply to what is going on with uh, Wolfian characters, uh, which is they are often writing from situations uh, like liter- like the 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 scene of a Wolfian narrator writing their story down is integral to a lot of them. Like the fact that Severian is writing this and we know he is writing this in a room. He is talking about how many candles have burned while it's been writing, so on and so forth. And at the same time, we have no idea what's going on with him. The Wolfian narrator is someone who is very conscious of like telling you a story, but the situation in which they are telling you the reader, that story is extremely weird and vague to you at best. Uh, so these are the things that he becomes very well known for. Uh, this is the the, the the sort of challenge of Gene Wolfe. I believe it's uh, Ursula K. Le Guin who calls him uh, R. Melville, meaning, you know, the, the genre people, R. Melville. Um, so he's also quite prolific. He wrote he, he's written quite a few novels uh, and a whole bunch of short stories. We can talk about those more as kind of maybe they're relevant. Um, but this is just to say that he kind of persists for a long time as a, a you know, the discerning uh, science fiction readers uh, author for, for a good long while. Uh, and he has a good, healthy career and eventually uh, passes away uh, in 2019 on April 14th. Not to cheapen it, but it's one day after the 10 year anniversary of Homestuck. <laughs> <laughs> this motherfucker. <laughs> also, he invented the machine that makes Pringles potato chips. Yes. Um, well, no, no, so, no, 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 no. No, this yeah. is important. He contributed this to is, it. He has corrected people <laughs> saying he invented it. I will I will read this. This is from an interview that he did with uh Lawrence Person because this was like the the line that was circulated about Gene Wolfe is like <laughs> He invented Pringles potato chips. So person asks, is it true that you invented the machine that makes Pringles potato chips? And Wolf says, I developed it. I did not invent it. That was done by a German gentleman whose name I've forgotten for years. I developed the machine that cooks them. He had invented the basic idea how to make the potato dough, pressing it between two forms, more or less in a wraparound, immersing them in hot cooking oil and so forth and so on. And we were called in. I was in the engineering development division and asked to develop mass production equipment to make these chips. And we divided the task into the dough making slash dough rolling portion, which was done by Lynn Hooper, and the cooking portion, which was done by me, and then the pick-off and salting portion, which was done by someone else, and then the can filling slash can sealing portion, which was done by a man who was almost driven insane by the program. Because he would develop a machine, and he would have it almost ready to go, and they would say, oh, instead of 300 cans a minute, make it 500 cans a minute. And so he would have to throw out a bunch of stuff and develop the new machine, and when he got that one about ready, they'd say, make it 700 cans a minute. And they almost put him in a mental hospital. He took his job very seriously and he just about flipped out. <laughs> and all that was happening in the propulsion chamber of a rocket ship. <laughs> <laughs> and all of that was happening in some massive biodome. <laughs> Uh, that's wild. I guess the one other thing I want to say about Gene Wolfe beyond the Pringle, the Pringling, mm-hmm. uh, as it were, is that, uh, uh, like I said at the top, right? Uh, Severian, not a good guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a complex work. Gene Wolfe does not necessarily, as an author, have the politics that I think <laughs> we have as human beings. Yeah. And, and I just need to flag that uh-huh. in case it comes up. Uh, there, there are thoughts and ideas that are expressed both by Gene Wolfe as a person, although in a general sense, I think he was mostly on the right track. 
Uh, but then also, like, say, the characters in this novel that are, like, objectively bad. Oh, yeah. And Gene Wolfe trusts you enough as a reader to look at that and see that Severian is not just, like, transparently giving you the truth of the world, right? Trans- uh, Severian is his own little guy with, like, a very kind of pocketed opinion about the world that, you know, is very linear for him. And we're supposed to judge Severian. Like, that is part of the work of reading the Book of the New Sun. We are supposed to look at Severian and think about his his words and deeds and considerations and then judge him. That is kind of part of the, I think, the theological background of the novel, to be frank. It is, is this question of how does one live in the world and who can judge another person? Mm-hmm. But also within that framework of judgment that Gene Wolfe brings, there are things I think we don't agree with there, too. And so there are going to be these weird moments of uh, cross-reading these books where it's going to be like, here's what Severian's doing. Uh-oh. Here's what Wolf is kind of giving us by having Severian do this. Uh-oh. Yeah. I guess. It, <laughs> and that's going to happen a few times. I, I guess this is some like minor context uh, that may or may not be helpful. Uh, I unfortunately I already mentioned Homestuck once, but if you listen to the Homestuck show, Homestuck made this world that we finished up um, a couple months ago and kind of provides the template uh, for what we're doing moving in here with like less of the stuff that maybe drives me a little nuts. Uh, uh, when I came to Gene Wolf, how I got to Gene Wolf was uh, back when I was what I called in the Homestuck show historical Michael, who was kind of a little shit. Um, and I was really interested in science fiction and kind of general. And I was like hanging out on like science fiction communities on live journal and things like that. Um, but because of frankly, my personal politics when I was like 18 years old, being like this hyper libertarian. Um, uh, the way that I got introduced to Gene Wolfe was through basically reactionary science fiction fandom. Mm. Um, and these people had very specific takes on how these books, uh, worked that, and this was part of like one of the ways in which like my own politics kind of developed and progressed is that, uh, I would get recommended books like this by these people and they would be like, here's this book. It's so cool. Here's what it's about. And here's what it's doing. And then I would sit down and read it and I would be like, I actually think it's doing something else. Right. right. I, I would start like realizing like, oh, these people have like a, a a drive to interpret this story in particular ways. And I see how they get there. And I also don't think they're totally working uh, uh, from the text. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. They got an agenda. Which which one I'm sure we have agendas also. That's mm-hmm. what it oh, means yeah, to be absolutely. a person. But two, it's probably worth saying up top that if this is the first thing that you've heard with any of us in it. We are not speaking from a point of universality. We don't think we are. We are we are doing our read of this thing in this moment. Ask us to do this episode again in a year, and I bet it goes different. I bet we, we zero in on different things. Um, I think all of us think of works of fiction as being multifaceted, containing multitudes, uh, uh, things that you could you could put under the microscope and come up with a different uh, read of it every single time. Uh, obviously, we will identify trends and think about things and patterns and, and big picture ideas. Uh, but but at no point do I think any of us think that media criticism is the job of solving the work. Mm-hmm. Um, we it is the job of. of Finding interesting theses, exploring them, defending them, trying to reveal perspectives on the work, uh, arguing for for your your position certainly, but not thinking that the work is ever done. Um, and so, right. I think that's an important uh, perspective to have if you're coming to us from without having ever heard or, or read our various previous uh, you know work in the space. So. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the thing to, to add to that, I'm really glad you brought that up because there are people who are kind of dedicated and a couple people have dedicated their lives mm-hmm. to solving Gene Wolfe. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are people who there's an entire what we might call a Gene Wolfe industrial complex of people who are offering you like, here's how this work works. Here's the truth of Gene Wolfe. You know, here are all the references, here are all of the pieces that if you put them together, gives you the math equation that is Gene Wolfe. We're not interested in that. We're going to offer some interpretive strategies, mostly because, and and here's a little bit of a selfishness on my part. There are parts of these books that that I've read, I think I've read the full thing four times, three or four times. Um, And uh, there are still parts of these books that I don't know what is happening. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Like, like I can't tell you what the the you know the lesson or the kind of illusion or even in some cases truly I don't know what occurs. I can't tell you plot wise what is happening and what I'm supposed to take from it because Wolf is this kind of complex interlayered writer. I can tell you like beat by beat the things that you know like. People say some person says X, another person says Y, another person says Z, but I don't know what it means, right? And so I kind of selfishly want to do the show because it's two people I trust to help work through those things in a really cool way. But we're really not engaging with that kind of Gene Wolfe industrial complex, and we are not doing the thing that I think a lot of those either podcasts or a lot of those written works or a lot of those forum posts, to go back to what Michael was talking about, because uh, I was reading those that you know listservs and things like that too way back in the day. Um, we're not doing that. We, we are interpreting, we're thinking, we're doing me- media criticism, and ultimately, you know, it's just a, it's a fun work to do, and it's a fun work to do with a little bit of guidance, too. And this is a little bit of guidance, but mostly almost like a book club. We're, we're here to talk uh, amongst ourselves with the thing, and of course, uh, we will have some sort of mechanism for you to send questions in. I don't know how that is, and we'll probably handle, handle those questions over on Patreon bonus episodes. Just to be honest with you, where do people go to support um, the Patreon? W- w- they can do that. They can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch to do that. There's a link in the description below in order to do it. There will be two things that are important there. Number one, you're giving us money, which is great. Number two, for $10 a month, which is our kind of standard uh, show thing for $10 a month, you'll get access to all the other things that we do. So just King things, bonus odes, our monthly show where we just kind of talk about whatever. Um, and, a, a lot of other stuff, the back uh, episodes of Homestuck made this world, all kinds of things like that. And also you will get access to a premium feed, a bonus episodes feed where once a month we will record these three people right here, me, Michael, Austin, we will record an episode on fantasy slash science fiction film of the 1970s and 80s. So contemporary to Book of the New Sun, which we have never said up to this point. Shadow of the Torturer comes out in 1982, I believe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> about uh, Around about 35 minutes in, let's just say, like when the book came out. Um, but that's what the bonus episodes are about, or are us watching these kind of uh, films of the era in which Book of the New Sun is coming out, and then talking about it. I'm having a grand old time. So you can check that out at patreon.com slash ranged touch. Um, I don't know what's going to be like. Uh, it's shelved by genre bonus uh, bonus episodes, but we don't know what those are going to be called yet. They'll probably have a fun little name. The first one, which is up next week. Uh, I will talk about the release schedule at the end of this episode. <laughs> it's going to be up next week, and it's on uh, Ralph Bakshi's 1978 The Lord of the Rings adaptation. 
So if you want to hear us talking about the animated Lord of the Rings, it's going to be up next week. So go, and go, go ahead and go over to patreon.com slash range touch in order to get in there right now and have access to that as soon as it goes up uh, a little while from now. Now, I'm opening the door on purpose this time. Okay. Not to, not to invite you to self-censor, Austin, mm-hmm. but to actually open the door. Do you have anything you would like to say before we move to the summary? Uh, Shadow of the Torture. And this is real. Shadow of the Torture came out in 1980. 1980. Oh, the, my God. What a fool. Yeah, uh-huh. They I'm all so run uh, through 83, I believe. Yeah. Which is oh, really? wild to think about. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. actually, like, just to derail us a little bit further, if I'm remembering this correctly, well, I know this for a fact. This started as a novella, um, which if that's not yeah. a term you're familiar with, just means like a very long short story that is not long enough to be a novel. Uh, Wolf started writing this as a novella. As he was writing it, it grew to become uh, a much longer book. Uh, which then, if I'm recalling this correctly, he was convinced by his uh, editor and or publisher to split into these four volumes. Um, so. Yeah, I think initially it was supposed to be three books and the the books three and four were split into two. Mm-hmm. So that I believe that is the thing. Here's another thing to say up, up, up top that like doesn't fit anywhere, but we'll have to refer back to it later. Severian was invented because <laughs> yes. of cosplay. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't Austin, know this. you know this story? No, maybe I, I have vague echoes of it bouncing around my brain as if you've told me this before and I've forgotten. I probably, I don't, I don't have the book in front of me. It's in Castle of the Otter, right. which is like books, like nonfiction book about his own work, which like, that's the kind of guy he was. Well, uh-huh. you know where the name um, for that came from, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, they, he was a furry. Uh, that's not why. That's not, that's not why. I cut that out of the bio. <laughs> Can you imagine? But he was a historian. Well, I don't know. So this is what, I mean, maybe, because here's what happens, right? I think he goes with Michael Swanwick. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he went with Michael Swanwick, but if not, it was someone else. He goes to a uh, science fiction fantasy convention, and he hears about this, like, costume contest. And Gene Wolfe goes, oh, my word, a costume contest. And he goes with whoever he's with. I don't know why I think it's Michael Swanwick. Maybe it's not. He goes with this person to the cosplay contest, and he sees all these characters of other people, you know, you know that other people have invented walking around. You know, he sees, uh, you know, whatever, some sort of Luke Skywalker, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what year this was in. Uh, I have none of the useful information about this. I'll, I'll, I'll get the details later. But uh, he goes and he goes, oh, my gosh, I don't have any characters. You know, no, I don't have a Conan the Barbarian. See, all my characters are weird, like French colonial dandies <laughs> dying on moons. <laughs> right, right. Or or they're just, like, not described at all. <laughs> he was like, God, golly, what, what can I do? I know. I'll make the sexiest guy in the world. <laughs> he wears a mask. He's buff as shit. He's got no shirt on, and he wears a cool cloak. Which I'm gonna mention. He's got a big ass sword. Constantly. Let me be clear. His cult, his cloak, uh, fullagen, darker than the darkest black. I'm going to say it repeatedly so that everyone gets the memo, so that their <laughs> costumes can be as sick as hell. <laughs> yes, that's it. Mm-hmm. He's like, what? I need to make a dude. I need to make my guy. King. Honestly. And so he creates this 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 like uh, absolute hunk of a little weird guy. <laughs> We're going to learn about Severian basically in order to fuel his his cos- cosplay desire, which I love. I want everyone I to know great. as someone it's the first time that I was reading these, I was bouncing between the text and an audiobook. And the audiobook 
uh, is performed by someone with an incredibly smooth voice. It's just the hottest voice you've ever heard on a guy. Uh, and so they've carried that forward. Very like meticulous and slow and um, lets the words sit in the air. Like a perfect, lovely voice. Um, I think the person's name is the same. It's John. It's, it's, I think, the same as the corn lead singer, but I don't think it, it's actually <laughs> Jonathan, Jonathan Davis? Davis. I think it's a different <laughs> Jonathan Davis, unfortunately. Just just in the middle of Book of the New Sun. I do not remember when I became a freak on a leash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's not true. The Severian's yeah, memory, the as we know, is oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, let me do that. All right. So, uh, for every episode, much like in what Michael did for our other show that is now complete, Homestuck made this world good show. By the way, people should go watch, listen to that show if you haven't listened to that show. Even if you're not yeah, you a should. Homestuck person, especially if you're not a Homestuck person, you should go listen to Homestuck made this world. Yeah, this is not that show. Uh, so, I no one's reading any forum posts for the show. <laughs> in fact. Uh, but, uh, but, but Michael did a very good thing on that show, which we are carrying forward here, which is doing a summary at the top of all the critical information you might need to know, just so we're all on the same page. And that's especially helpful in a thing like Homestuck, which is very complicated and sometimes hard to know what's going on. It's really helpful with Book of the New Sun because it's often complicated and hard to know what's going on. And so I'm doing it for this one, and maybe I'm doing it for all of this book, or maybe I'm doing it for all of them. I don't really know. We haven't discussed it yet. I'm willing to negotiate after having written one um, because I started out by writing one paragraph per chapter. And I thought they would be short paragraphs, and they're not. So here is my 1,000-word summary of the first Six chapters of Book of the New Sun. We are introduced to our point of view character, Severian, an apprentice torturer of the Order of the Seekers for Truth and Penitence. He starts the book by telling us a story of the day that he almost drowned in the river Gaiol and explains that later that evening, he and some other apprentices had to trick some volunteer cemetery guards into letting them through a gate. In this description, Severian also explains that he has a perfect memory for both information and emotions. He calls, it, he calls this his joy and curse. He also claims that he is, quote, insane, given that sometimes he cannot distinguish between what he fantasizes about or dreams and what is a real memory. This will create many moments for interpretation through the series. <laughs> the volunteer guards are attacked and Severian runs away from them in a thick mist. He runs into a man at full speed and discovers three grave robbers with aristocratic voices, Vodalus, Thea, and an unnamed man. The latter two make off with a corpse, and Vodalus stays to defend their exit. The volunteers fight with Vodalus and are going to kill him until Severian comes out of the mist and fights an axeman, killing him with his own weapon and saving Vodalus's life. Vodalus gives him a coin before disappearing into the fog, and Severian aligns himself with Vodalus's revolutionary ideals in the narrative framing itself, and reveals to us his hatred of the Autark. We don't really know what that is yet. The first chapter ends with him asserting to us that he has, quote, backed into the throne, revealing that we are reading what revealing that what we are reading is some sort of autobiography either written or told well after the facts of the events themselves. We then learn of Severian's life. He lives in the massive ruinous city of Nessus and within a portion of the city called the Citadel. His order, the Torturers, finds its home in the Matican Tower. The people who come to be tortured are called clients. The tower itself is some kind of decaying, ancient rocket ship. 
He was raised from infancy to become a torturer and has very little idea of the world outside of that context. He's a weird little guy who spends his time in a mausoleum that he fantasizes houses his family, and he imagines that a little bronze, a little bronze funerary sculpture is his relative. He also likes swimming, and he tells us about his almost drowning that took place when he was in a tangled mass of lilies in the river. As he drowned, he hallucinated seeing his old master of apprentices, and then a huge woman who grasped him and saved him. As one, one witness says, he shot right out of the water, and the other apprentices took him to the shore and resuscitated him. And then all the stuff I talked about earlier happened. Mm -hmm. We learn more about the operations of the guild. It is tightly bound by tradition and a division of labor between masters, journeymen, and apprentices. They all torture and are despised by society for it. They are attached to the rest of society and that they do the torturing for them, but they are far away from the actions of the world. They are the acting hand of political order, not the creators or even consultants of political decisions. The real political decisions of this world happen in the house absolute, the hold of the autarch, far away from Nessus. Severian finds a dog, Triskel, <laughs> who he calls, quote, the smallest of those dead, end quote, animals who are disposed of by the animal trainers in another local guild. He sneaks Triskel into the guild, and we are introduced to the Fooligan Cloak, the cloak of the torturer that is blacker than black itself. Severian nurses Triskel back to health and hides him in the Madakin Tower's basement, but then the dog escapes down a tunnel and Severian gets lost trying to find him. He finally escapes out of a hole and finds himself in a place called the Atrium of Time, where he meets a woman named Valeria, who tells him the Atrium is full of sundials because of its name and not the other way around. She's the last of her family who wanted to leave the planet with the past Autark or with a past Autark and never did. Severian sees Triskel a few times later, although he never learns who is taking care of the dog. Severian is promoted to captain of the apprentices, and his first action as a ruler is to brutally beat another kid to force him into being his lieutenant, and then forcing that kid to beat up all the other kids who want to make in order to make sure that everyone stays in order. He meets the curator of the Citadel on his way to meet with the archivist Altan on a mission for his masters, and he tells him about some of the greatest painters of the world. He then meets Altan, who is a master librarian. He is blind, and he has an apprentice named CB. CB's kind of like a minion, mm -hmm. like, a, like a capital M minion, mm -hmm. he, but not a papaya <laughs> and whatnot. Altan explains about his guild and also that the library is seemingly bigger than its container, stretching beyond its bounds and into the house absolute itself. It is unclear if this is a metaphor or not. <laughs> he tells Severian about his life and about all the books in the library. He explains that, that he became blind just as he was about to oversee the first general survey of the contents of the library since its founding. Saibi reads Altan the letter that uh, Severian delivers, and in it we learn that the torturers need books to furnish a room for an exultant named Chatelaine Thecla's stay in the tower as a client. We only learn the name of one of the books, the Book of the Wonders of the Earth and Sky. Severian asks if you can eat people and absorb their memories, and he and Altan have a conversation about how big a life is. They also talk about jizz. Severian leaves, and that's all we read for today. Yep. That's it. That's, all that that's the summer. That's what happened. That's what mm -hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so one thing one thing that I really want to flag here, because it I think it uh it, it was in the summary, um, but if you're not reading along, uh this is like a great example of what we say when we these books can be confusing or hard to follow. It's chapter one takes place after chapter two. Yeah. 
right? Like the book yeah, opens chronologically, right, right? Like chronologically, the book opens describing a scene, and then the next chapter is like, by the way, here's what we were doing just before this happened. Except not even that clearly, right? Severian, like the way his narrative moves is he will uh, just sort of like bamf back or forward into time, uh, uh, or like kind of jump around chronologically. Uh, in ways that can be confusing and raise these questions of interpretation of like, he's, we are so like we are by the end of that first chapter, we are so clear that he is writing this story. And so it raises this question of why is he being fiddly with the timeline here? Why is he kind of doing something a little weird with the order of events? Uh, Not that there's nothing or something uh, deep that we can talk about there right now, but just like, you know, chapter one and chapter two are transposed chronologically. And that's like, that sets the tone for so much of what's going to happen going forward. I mean, I think we can talk to it a little bit, which is that like, he can't help himself. Um, (laughs) He's a guy who can't stop ruining his own fucking stories. (laughs) Um, this, this is the moment for him. I mean, a a, a thing that didn't come up in that, in that, uh, not only does he back himself into the throne, but right away he describes this as the, the, the intro story with him, uh, meeting Vodalus as being the, the symbol for the, the moment, uh, of his exile. Like, and so it's like, okay, he's been exiled. He talks about betraying the order at some point also Mm -hmm. in these first six chapters. And it's like, Dude, like you're telling me the story. You'll get there. Don't worry about it. But that's important about who he is because these things, these things have a gravity. Uh, these stories have a gravity for him, and so he has to start at the voterless story because that's the big story in his mind. And then he'll get back to the part where he almost drowned and met a big woman. You know? Yeah. Uh, in that first chapter, because uh, I also think this is relevant. This is thematic, capital T. That first chapter is called Resurrection and Death. So. Mm. Right. Like uh, transposition uh, of order is a huge thing in all throughout this whole book. And it's something I, I'm going to be keeping an eye on, at least as we read through it this time. So we begin with resurrection, the thing that happens after death, but resurrection and death. And we've got this kind of like transposed structure as well. And as you're saying, Austin, uh, it's a thing that Severian's perfect memory, perhaps uh, it makes him incapable of not doing. <laughs> Yeah, you, you, uh, let's talk about perfect memory. Um, and uh, before we do that, I do want to read the. So this is on page twenty-one. I am reading. What what editions of the book are people reading? I've got the Orb Books Shadow and Claw first half. And and the reason that we haven't used that in like you know we've generally not used page numbers or anything like that yet is that all the chapters for all the editions are the same, obviously. So we can we can meet there. But yeah, are people reading like the new newest editions? Where, where are we at here with our editions? I have to tell you, I'm using an EPUB book. I apologize. Okay, that's acceptable. I do have, uh, I did splurge on that very fancy edition with all of the sick art in it uh, that came mm-hmm. out a few years ago. Uh, but it, it, I can't take that easily to the cafe, you know? <laughs> right, right. Uh, I uh, don't mind me. I'm just reading Book of the New Sun over here. <laughs> Get it. Here's what you do is you take that to the cafe, but you also print out a giant uh, Infinite Jest slip cover. <laughs> and you wrap that around <laughs> Well, you have because it's in two uh, volumes, right? In a slipcase, you have to take all of it with yeah, you, and you have to thing. put it on the table and pull it out of the slipcase, mm-hmm. pull the ribbon out, yeah. you know, ornately. Um, but uh, but yeah, my, oh, I was just gonna say, I think I have the uh, uh, the same edition as you, Cameron. The the orb paperbacks that I like. This is the first and only edition of these books that I ever purchased. So yeah, it was kind of the only one running. You both have standalone copies of the book then, of the Shadow of the Torturer. No, we've got we have Shadow and Claw. Yeah. 
I do have a copy because, uh, yes, uh, this is a good thing to point out. These books are generally at this point uh, published in two omnibus versions. So two books in each one. The first, Shadow and Claw, which has Shadow of the Torture and Claw, the Conciliator in it. And then Sword and Citadel, which is Sword of the Lictor and Citadel, the Autark. And uh, yeah, they're just like in two omnibus versions with the fifth book kind of as its own thing. And that tends to be the way that they are printed now. I don't know of any individual volumes. However, I do have a single individual hardcover copy of mm. Citadel the Autark that I got in a at a uh, thrift store one time. So they did exist. They were published as individual volumes when they initially came out. But for the most part, if you were going to find these books in the wild somewhere, you're you're going to get these omnibus versions. The audiobooks um, are individual, which makes it even more complicated, by the way. <laughs> so Yeah, thanks audiobook makers. Mm-hmm. Uh well, I mean, you got to give they need that runtime. <laughs> That's right. For the languid language of of the thing. Um I don't remember why I started talking about this before I said what, you because you were going to check a, a page for yeah. Suggestion oh, 21. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yes. It's on page 21 of my edition of the Orb paperback version. It's the last paragraph of chapter two. And I just want to read this because this is exactly what Michael is saying. Um, the last sentence of that is one of the youths we sometimes fought brought a dusty blanket and I wrapped myself in it, but it was so long before I was strong enough to walk again that by the time we reached the gate of the necropolis, the statue of night atop the con on the opposite bank was a minute scratch of black against the sun's field of flame and the gate itself stood closed and locked. And so that gate that they are standing in front of in the last couple words of chapter two is the gate that they are standing in front of in, uh, the second sentence of chapter one. So they literally are, if you just flip them, it would be perfectly running into one another. You know, they, you could, you could flip these two things and they would be one chapter unbroken Mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, that is uh, just worth noting that not only like conceptually, you know what you're talking about, Michael, but literally (laughs) like linguistically, these two things would fit together like Lego pieces and they are flipped for a reason that is a little unclear. Currently. I think also displayed here in this in this graph is, uh, yo, uh, Gene Wolfe is using words we might not know intuitively or using words we might not know, comma, intuitively. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, a, the statue of night atop the con on the opposite bank. Night, by the way, is capitalized with an N. And so there's something suggestive happening here. It's a proper noun. Night must be a person. It's a statue of a person named Knight or God or something. Um, and then, and then, what's a con uh, in this use? K H A N, like like you might think of Genghis Khan. But clearly, the statue is not on top of an uh, ancient Mongolian warlord. So what's happening here? Uh, and that happens constantly, right? I, I have a list of of many of the words that. Um, that Wolf uses that are archaic or derived from Latin or Greek or uh, are invented uh, whole cloth or referencing, you know, uh, terminology that is, you know, a term of art, uh, but but not necessarily something in, in colloquial usage. Um, and so uh, in general, I find like this is this is something we'll probably come back to again and again. Um you're going to hear us say words, and as a reader, you're going to hit words you do not know, roll with it. Try to intuit what it means because most of the time, 
you know, I, he says Barbican early. I think Barbican is a word most people have encountered mm-hmm. if they've read fantasy before. But if you don't, you can probably j- understand that when the Barbican is something that has a guard and they want to get through the Barbican, you could be like, oh, it's like a gate, I guess. It's some sort of thing that prevents people from getting through it. And that tends to be how he uses these words. Um, uh, and we can talk more about why that is maybe maybe later. But but don't don't beat yourself up if you're like, I don't know what these words are. <laughs> What is a a misday? What is a gallipot? What is and some of them are, are setting things like armatures and exultants, which again you can kind of use your root word knowledge to make oh armagers the word arm is there like a like a weapon and exultants is like well I know what it means to be exalted so I guess an exultant is someone who's exalted in some way you know or mm-hmm. exalted in some way yeah. Yeah, so. and, and I think that's right. Like there, there is there are a lot of people who, and there you know, there's lexicon earthists. There's actual publications Which you where people read have chased really down. Quick. I think that that book is cool as hell. I have a copy of it. I'm looking at it right now. Um, don't if this is your first time through, resist the urge to get that book and look up every word. Partly because you will spoil yourself on big things, uh, and partly because there's there is a line in this book uh, uh, where he says. Um, I believe this is in the first chapter. Um, he says, uh, we believe we believe that we invent symbols. The truth is that they invent us. We are their creatures shaped by their hard defining edges. When soldiers take their oath, they are given a coin, an asymmy stamped with the profile of the autark. Their acceptance of that coin is their acceptance of the special duties and burdens of military life. They are soldiers from that moment, though they may be though they may know nothing of the management of arms. I did not know that then, but it is a profound mistake to believe that we must know of such things to be influenced by them. And in fact, to believe so is to believe in the most debased and superstitious kind of magic. The would-be sorcerer alone has the faith in the efficacy of pure knowledge. Rational people know that things act of themselves or not at all. And he's talking about a lot of things here. This is a variant thinking about the world in a particular type of way. But it's also, you can apply that to the use of language in this in this book. That when, when you know, I don't think, this is the one I like the most, but I don't think it comes up here, is when he describes a horse as a destrier, or he uses the word <laughs> destrier to mean horse, it hits you in a way, and it's magic working on you. It is It is the symbol is having an effect on you. It's transporting you to a place familiar yet distant, uh, and it, you don't need to know that a destrier is a medieval war horse for that to work. It has it in the war. It, it's not quite um, it's not quite, that's why we call it money, right? Uh, but, but, it, but there is an element of that here in the sense that the word choice evokes and you should trust in the evocation uh, and not race to find true meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to echo ourselves earlier about Wolf in general, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and just to, to you know another reason not to grab that book and kind of use it as a key uh, to this thing is that that book is full of interpretation. Right. Um, the the that that book is a glossary. Uh, disguising a work of interpreting what the ideas and meanings of of uh, you know the the book of the new sun are and frankly I want to be resistant to some of that um, because there are kind of hegemonic symbolic meanings that are here mm-hmm. and I think you're exactly right Austin that the way to take all of the archaicisms and synonyms in this book is not 
if you chase this down, you'll find the truth in ancient Greece or <laughs> in Latin or in the church fathers, right? right. It's that it, exactly that evocative thing. Uh, you know, we talk a lot in science fiction studies and fantasy too, but particularly in science fiction about estrangement, right? You know, you take a situation and you put it into a science fictional context, you allegorize it or whatever, and it allows you to see some, something different. You know, this is going back to Brecht. This is going back to a long leftist tradition of trying to deploy these methods to do things that it goes through lots of different um, uh, iterations. I wouldn't say that uh, estrangement has inherent politics to it or anything like that. But what's going on is that exactly that kind of thing you're talking about, the use of language to estrange common stuff to make us be like, it's a destrier. It's a horse. Is it a? Is it a? Is it a horse? Horse or right. is it some other right. thing? Which uh, we can see happen here too. And I want to. I want to break these pieces out. But the word dog does a lot of work yep. in this yep. in this uh, book too to make something that is actually very unfamiliar feel much more familiar than it is. Right. Uh, kind of the opposite effect. Well, and 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 there's also I wouldn't you know go ahead and write the words down that you don't know. Because yeah, they might absolutely. return. Yeah. You know, the word Arctother shows up here. And uh, eventually you, you see it deployed next to the house of the bear, right? And you might go, oh, Arctother, Arctother sounds a little bit like Arthur, and Arthur means bear, right? I mean, I don't know if you know that. It's a thing I happen to know because my <laughs> one of my best friends is named Art, and we previously have talked about this. I was like, oh, right, an Arctother, that's like, it's Arthur adjacent. That's kind of fun. Um, uh, and also, sometimes... They talk about those two things in relation. And so, like, having that list of words that you want to come back to and figure out what it's being used as is really fun. I think that having the book uh, or the uh, Lexicon Earthus is a – it's a cool project. I don't want to, like, sit here and be like, then it should be burned. You know, that is not, not my oh, position. No. No, I think it's sick. It's cool to have on my bookshelf. Um, it's it's fun to look at. And it's fun to look up a word here and there. But I don't think that it's – you will not find your solution there. Instead, the solution is in uh, – insofar as there is one – is in the ambiguity and, and how Wolf plays with the ambiguities. Because another thing that happens, I think, in these opening chapters is my man's constantly setting stuff up that he will pay off. Uh, mm -hmm. And some of this is structural um, in terms of, you know, we've already talked about like, oh, how does Severian's focus, you know, move around uh, in, in his own story. But also it's things like, it is things like the the Fulogen cloak being mentioned over and over again, the color that is darker than black. And it's like, okay, I'm getting this in your brain. Like this is a key element of the torturers. They have the wide-bladed carnificial swords, which in theory I was not supposed to touch, and the, the Fulogen cloak. And he says it over and over again. And there's other elements of that here without getting into future content where it's like, oh, He's and she slowly introduced, you know, one of the books is called The Claw of the Conciliator. That thing comes up in these chapters a number of times in a in a slight reference here or there, as if to familiarize the reader with the idea that that is a thing that is on the mind of Severian, the writer, and in a way, maybe in the kind of common lexicon of people of the era, because it is it is a legendary thing. And so it pops up here and there. I think that that is an, another thing that like put the trust in the book that it will get to answering bits of the and also you're listening to us. We will talk about the stuff that will help, I think. Yes. Yeah. And I think uh, sort of related to all of that and kind of like bending back toward uh, Cameron's initial question about like Severian in the perfect memory. This is right. one of the reasons why I think reception to this book can be so heightened and also just like so so multifaceted and weird uh, is because Severian as a character and as a narrative voice is so 
uh, embedded in the world that he is describing that we have these kind of multiple barriers. Like the first one is just like purely linguistic between the reader and whatever's going on here, where it's like, wait a minute, what are these words? What's going on? Like, this is a word that I know, but it's being used in a weird way. Uh, so on and so forth. So you have to work through that. And then beyond that, you have this guy who is saying, hey, BTW, uh, I have a perfect memory for <laughs> all things that have ever happened to me. Um, and then you have to ask yourself this question. It's like, OK, there's there's like there's interpretive calls to be made here. One, he's lying like straight up. That's just not true. However, we live in a fantasy world here. Like there, there's there's stuff going on that's clearly outside the bounds of like regular possibility, right? Giant ladies in, in rivers uh, rescuing people. Uh, maybe, again, we only get that through him, but uh, right. you know, there, there, it's genre fiction, right? There's a possibility that this guy could have perfect memory. Uh, so you, you get like a, a call there, like, is he being honest about that? Is that true? And if so, if it is true, what does it mean to have perfect memory? Because as you were saying, Cameron, um, you know, uh, like say a Gene Wolfe character who's like not particularly good at picking up on social cues may have a perfect memory and may not realize that there are things that they didn't notice that they're not remembering and therefore not telling you. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like uh, there's the additional complication with Severian there of he might believe he has a perfect memory right. and not have one. <laughs> right. And so uh, uh, this all this often gets uh, boiled down to like Severian being an unreliable narrator, which I think to some extent does it a little bit of a disservice because unreliable narrator often, I think, just is used to mean um, a narrator with an agenda, which Severian absolutely has, uh, but an agenda that's marked in a particular way as like, oh, this person's like relationship to the world uh, that they're describing it like essentially like they're lying to you or they are like, quote unquote, crazy or something, right? Like a, a Poe narrator. It's the beating of his hideous heart and that sort of thing. Right. Mm -hmm. No Lovecraft. Right, right. An August Derleth. Right. right. This is not in a grove, the the story that would become Rashomon, where it's like, oh, you have these different perspectives, and each of them is hiding something from you, the reader. Uh, this is this, you know, the way it is, the way I interpret Severian is very much this is a guy who believes his own bullshit, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, Severian's high on his own supply. Right. For Do sure. you want to read the thing that we've interrupted you from reading now eighteen times? Did you read it and I've forgotten? I, I did read okay, it, and then you re funny. then you read it back. Oh, right. Then you also read okay, it. Well, listen. <laughs> <laughs> That's the show. I'm, folks. We're in the we're in the the sauce right now. All right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. This is the definition of being in the sauce. Uh, Michael, were you? We have now interrupted you. Are you? Have you completed your general schemata of what the hell is Severian up to? Yeah, I mean, I just I wanted to connect those dots and sort of underscore that, like, you know, I think unreliable is absolutely a way you can describe a Severian, but I think you need to qualify what unreliable means, because there are going to be moments where it feels like absolutely this guy isn't telling me something and is therefore being unreliable. And then there are parts where, like, us as readers who exist outside the text can understand things that Severian cannot by virtue of him yeah. being so of the world that he is in that he doesn't like we have knowledge that he just simply could not have. And so uh, we can pick things apart in ways where he is not necessarily like lying or even deceiving us. He just quite literally does not understand things that he sees in ways that we can understand them. <laughs> Or doesn't care about them, which yes. brings us to the what I, I'm going to call it the Madachin Tower because I think it's Madachin. I do think mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's not a it's not a hard C H. Uh, I'm, I'm in me. this camp for the record. Okay, 
Okay. Okay. Well, I will be the solo mannequin tower guy. It's a cool. It's I like it with a hard with a hard K also, but for me, it's a, it's a CH, uh, and it, it's why he doesn't make a big deal of it being a rocket ship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because for him, it's the tower he grew up in. And yeah, I you know he understands that they're, they they talk about flyers, which are like you know ships that fly around, um, and the the exultant or sorry the Altark having one that could bring him here in in just a second or whatever. Um, but it's not important to him that the thing that he lives in is a big rocket ship that has been stuck in its launch silo for generations and generations it's important to him that it is a tall structure that everyone calls a tower that it has a beat some guns on the top and it's only barely important to him that it has some guns on the top if they didn't fire that thing off during the feast of saint catherine he wouldn't think about those guns either you know mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. Uh, those are the things that, and so and so it's not only he's an it's not only quote he's an unreliable unre- uh, narrator it's that he's a narrator who like you said michael is in the world and has has very normal priorities. Like if we were telling a story about our world to someone who was from, you know, 3000 years ago, we might not spend a lot of time talking about indoor plumbing and sewer systems because they're not that important to us in our day-to-day lives as focal points for thematic storytelling. (laughs) But they're an incredible, fantastical element of our daily lives. That's like, I live on the second or third floor of my building and have a toilet over there and I can just use that and then my waste goes away. Wait a minute, you're not just dumping your sewage into the street? (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Among the fish wives of New York City. (laughs) (laughs) And so like, that's how this is written in many ways, uh, and also he he has he has a way he wants to tell a story to you as a person, which is which goes even beyond the like I'm in the world and goes into the like, you know he thinks he's he thinks he's the guy he's telling you his little heroic story. I think we haven't said yet is um, these first six chapters really feel like a coming of age story. They really feel like a, a buildings roman where like oh, this is a little guy and he's going through all his little adventures of his adolescence and he's like slowly becoming a man. And like in that way, you could put it in conversation with, I don't like Portrait of the Artist as as a Young Man or or Wizard of Earthsea, right? Like you Mm -hmm. could draw a comparison between those two characters and say like, oh, he's in this genre space actually in this this part of the book. Um, uh, And I think that that is also a a kind of fascinating thing because Severian is working in genre fiction here. You know, yeah. not just Wolf, but Severian, the storyteller, also is playing. And oh, they're in the dormitory, and they're looking up at the at the ceiling and dreaming of what who their families could have been. They're they're you know he has the little coin that he gets from Voterless, and that is like this powerful totemic item that he keeps, and it's it's it has a sort of aura to it, and like that is classic coming of age story. A kid has a thing that they love and they care for and they hide it away in their secret place. And in this case, the secret place is a mausoleum he sleeps in sometimes because he's a goth kid. He he's just the goofiest little goth kid. I mean, that is the the treasure of Severian, uh, despite the fact that he is truly just an awful goblin of a man. <laughs> like as the story progresses, not to 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 get too far ahead, but you know, Severian's just terrible, like as a dude. But like it, it, he's such like an innocently little uh, goofball at this point, right? And he is so deeply embedded in the the torturers uh, that his lovable goofballness is like he's a little goth goth kid, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the deal. I mean, we can talk about Triskel if y'all want to talk about the, that chapter, which is like deeply resonant, and we can maybe like dive in on that. I feel like we probably all got 
uh, feelings about it. Let me tell you, uh, FYI, just I'm, I, while y'all were talking, I was doing some searching here. Matachin, Mad- Mad- mm-hmm. I think I think y'all are right. Okay. Uh, it, it, it means the killers. Ah, sure. Matar is to kill mm-hmm. in lots of Spanish and Spanish-related dialects. So. Okay. And we... <sighs> I guess you're right. We, um, yeah, yeah, that's all I'll say. There's a lot of there's there is a weird blend of languages and places here such that we know that they're in the south, I guess, is in the south of the world of mm-hmm. of their of their planet. Right. Uh, so, yeah, that is the yeah, we'll talk about it as we go forward. But, yeah, there are lots of um, uh, lots of analyses you can do on this book to demonstrate they're in the southern hemisphere of the planet they are on mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, Yeah, I think talking about Triskel is actually really interesting here uh, relative to what we're just talking about, because the thing that really jumps out at me or like really jumped out at me this time reading that chapter uh, is the way that so uh, Severian finds this wounded dog uh, in the pile of uh, animal corpses that come out of the basically the animal training guild, right? The people who are like training their combat bears and stuff. Yeah, the most fantasy ass (laughs) thing that you can imagine. Uh They're beast masters, 100 percent. Um, also, some of their beasts are named things like Thyclodon, and like they are. Yeah. Do they have dinosaurs? I don't know, but they <laughs> yeah. definitely have shit called Thyclodons, <laughs> and they get married to bears. Yeah. They do get married shit. to bears. It's true. Uh, so he finds this dog, uh, and it's wounded um, and near death, uh, or you know. No, right? he's, he seems pretty he dead. He was the smallest of yeah. the dead is yeah. the line. So, uh, yeah. So he he picks up this yeah. this dog corpse uh, and uh, wouldn't you know it, like the, the dog is OK suddenly. And he uh, performs surgery, essentially, um, to like tie off the dog's missing leg and help it heal. And. It, it's like very notable that this is such a smooth operation for him because it's all part of his torturer training. Yes. And he doesn't make this remark. He's not like, thankfully, because of my torturer training, I knew how to help this wounded animal. It is all of a piece. <laughs> this Sumerian to- voice you've got. <laughs> That's <laughs> your Hanna-Barbera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this is uh, the Mad Hatter, uh-huh. the March Hare, and the person who talks about torture. Uh-huh. This is, yeah, whoever owns the audiobook uh- rights to this. Like, I can outdo that other guy. <laughs> Um, uh, no he just like it very naturally uh like it it is just clearly an outgrowth of his training for him he's like oh yeah here's how you like do the surgery right here's how you would like flay Mm -hmm. these pieces of skin like tie off these arteries uh uh stitch it back together so on and so forth um and that's just all of a piece to him, right? It is mm-hmm. just like what he has been taught. It is what he knows how to do. And he doesn't even make a conscious distinction, it seems like, between the fact that he is doing something to save a life here versus like, you know, make a life miserable. Um, because like the torturers have to know some of this stuff because one of their jobs is prolonging the right. torment. And right. it's gruesome stuff, as you say here in the show, Doc Cameron. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we get, we only get one scene of torture, I think, explicitly in this uh, opening six chapters, but it is, it's enough to, to do you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it, yeah. like, it's a hefty helping. Well, and it's the coldness of that scene. Go ahead. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they, they, de- they de-boot a woman. Um, you know, uh, uh, the content warnings actually do matter <laughs> for the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, yeah, they, you know, r- flay all of the flesh from below the knee into the toes. 
Um, and they do it without with uh, only making a single incision. Mm-hmm. And so it is with hooks and um, ropes and pulling the skin apart um, uh, from a single point outward. And so it's horrifying to even think about that is to, to consider that torment for a moment is excruciating. And it is it's emotionless. I mean, mm-hmm. because Severian is brought up in the in the tortures and in, in the, you know, guild of whatever and penitence. And uh, that's what they do. You know, th- this is their job in the same way that the beast trainers presumably, you know, they lived with the beasts. They do all that kind of stuff. Um, they they live this full life. And, and the. Uh, the externalization of that, right, is seeing the dead dog, you know, seeing these this pile of corpses they dump outside their tower for other people to come along and take um, because that's just part of the, the the life of the thing. That's what they do. They don't really consider the thing, you know, any anything beyond the job itself, which is a job they have dedicated their entire life to. We know that the torturers are recruited as infants. Right. You know, they are given to the tower. Uh, well, or left at the tower right. or whatever. <laughs> or a pregnant woman comes as a client and they take the child. If, and if the child right. is a boy, they keep him. And if it's a woman, right. they go to the witches. Uh, she goes to the witches. Uh, but but you're, the other thing that's happening here is that the reason Severian is not like aghast at the idea of the the Beastmasters, you know, dumping a pile of dead animals is – it is in his worldview the way the that is how the world works. Uh, he says yeah, in this yeah. chapter, uh, I have found always the pattern of our guild is repeated mindlessly, like the repetitions of Father Nears mirrors at the House Absolute uh, in the societies of every trade, so that they all uh, so that they are all of them torturers, just as we. Uh, his quarry stands to the hunter as our clients to us, those who buy to the tradesmen, the enemies of the commonwealth to the soldier, the governed to the governors, men to women, all love that which they destroy. Uh, and that is, you know, I, again, it opens the gender door here. We will get, we will wrap back around to that. I promise. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're exactly right that for Severian, this is a, a critical moment of, uh, is this a narratorial statement by Wolf? No, I don't think so. Although there, again, it opens the door to thinking about like what the hell's going on with gender in this book, but it, it is entirely Severian's worldview encapsulated, right? That everyone, he, he sees his relationship to his vocation. Cause it's not a job, right? right. It's a vocation. Right. It's a way of life. His relationship to his vocation and the way that that vocation mediates his relationship to the world. He believes is how every person in the universe engages with the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another word for this we might have, right? You know, uh, the imaginary relation to real relations is ideology, mm-hmm. right? And and this is Severian's statement about ideology, about the way that we approach the world and think the world. Yeah. And also sometimes he undercuts that with his own actions, right? Oh, yeah. So, which we'll get to. Yeah, it's what we believe versus what we do, right? <laughs> like, And reading this book is paying attention. Does What does Severian say? Versus what does he do? Because there, there's a gulf between those things sometimes. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the whole Triskel thing, and particularly when Triskel runs off and, and he meets Valeria, there's an interesting moment of this where he's talking to Valeria, who, as Cameron mentioned, is this uh, uh, aristocratic woman, like an exultant, a young exultant woman about his age who's been hanging out in some other part of uh, this complex, the Citadel, right? This sort of like complex of buildings where all these guilds are housed and where in times of old, the Autark held court, although there is, it has been a long time since the Autark uh, actually dwelled in the Citadel. Um, So he runs into Valeria uh, and she says, my nurse told me that he, he mentions the witch's tower. 
Um, and we don't really know much about what the witches are up to, but uh, he mentions it. And Valeria says, my nurse told me of it when I was little to frighten me, but I thought it was only a tale. There was supposed to be a tower of torment, too, where all who enter die in agony. I told her that, at least, was a fable. Right. Just so this incredible moment of what's happening here with Severian, like, is the ideology so strong for him that he does not recognize uh, her describing what is obviously his guild? Or is he like intentionally not mentioning the fact that he is from the Tower of Torment? Right. Is his ideology so strong that he doesn't recognize that uh, people die in agony? Does he somehow see like what he is doing as uh, an ultimately like good service? Right. That that, that pulls mm. people into peace or whatever. Um. Uh, but sort of related to what I was talking about with Triskel, eventually he talks about, you know, not like not knowing where the dog is and so on. Um, right, because it's run off into the depths of this Citadel complex, into parts mm-hmm. of it. These chapters do such a good job of making the Citadel feel vast and mm-hmm. uh, impossible to know, which which by extension makes the world feel large because it's also emphasized that we are in a small corner of just the Altarks holdings. Mm-hmm. And so taken at large, we are in a tiny, tiny little corner of the world that exists. In fact, again, throw offline somewhere in here that like, oh, yeah, we used to go to space. We don't do that so much anymore. But where we used to go, we used to leave the world behind <laughs> entirely. And now I'm getting lost in the hallways under my bedroom. <laughs> you know, yeah. like that. Uh, and so, like, I think that that's, you know, when, when Trisco comes up and is in this whole other place that he's never been to before, despite being a little kid who goes and hides in the mausoleum, you know, like – uh, I think that there's a it communicates a lot about how limited his perspective is, and so you get a moment like that, and it is a question: Is he hiding something from her? Is his perspective so limited that he only thinks of the torturers as people who uh, he could never say that people die in agony because because he's been taught that a good torturer lets people die in peace. Actually, the death is not the agony; the agony has come before mm-hmm. the death. Or or is it or is it this this deception? Uh, and, and it's it's possible that it's the latter because of all the work Wolf has done showing Severian is so limited in in uh, worldliness. Related to that, uh, so Valeria, he's talked to uh, Valeria about Triskel, who, by the way, gets that name because he is, uh, I didn't make this clear, I think, earlier, uh, he's missing a leg. So he has, right. uh, a Triskel is a, a three-legged mm-hmm. symbol, or like a three-kind-of-spoked symbol, and so there's a little joke being made here. Uh, and then uh, Valeria is talking to him, Severian is sad because he can't find the dog, Valeria says, <clears throat> You see, you have found some comfort here. You are worried about your poor dog because he is lame, but he too may have found hospitality. You love him, so another may love him. You love him, so you may love another. Uh... And then he says, I agreed, but secretly thought that I would never have another dog, which has proved true. Uh, and it's so good because, like, you know, Valeria is actually making this, like, beautiful point here, right? She's trying to be like, you know, you had this dog, you took care of him, and now he's gone, but he's going to, like, do something else with his life. And, like, you have this capacity to love, right? You have a capacity yeah. to feel for things. And that's, like, that is also something that we need to flag is, like, like Severian doesn't have a reason for saving Triskel, right? It is just a thing that he wants to do, uh, and he does it. Uh, it's because he's struggling with with adulthood, right? Like, yeah. he has that line where he's like, um, uh, I, I, I knew him for the poor animal he was, and yet I could not let him die because I would have been breaking a f- 
a, a faith with something in myself. If I had been, mm-hmm. a, I had been a man, if I truly was a man such a short time, I could not endure to think I'd become a man so different from the boy I had been. I could remember each moment of my past, and he talks about having that again, and towards the, how could I destroy that past, the past of being this other boy who would have helped a little animal? I held up my hands and tried to look at them. I knew the veins stood out on their backs now. It is when those veins stand out that one is a man. In a dream, I walked through the fourth level again and found a huge friend there with dripping jaws. It spoke to me. <laughs> this book fucking goes so yeah. hard. <laughs> right. So Valeria says, like, you know, feel don't feel bad because you lost right. your dog, Severian. Feel happy because you have the capacity to love. And his response is, I don't know if I'll ever get another dog. <laughs> And yeah, right. And that's built, you know, baked into all this stuff that that Austin's saying, right? Where it's like the he has a mental image of what where he's supposed to be, mm-hmm. uh, and we don't know where that mental image is coming from. Is it a, adult Severian thinking back about what that's supposed to be? Is it then Severian projecting forward, whatever, right? And and even within that, within obviously he is writing the complexness of what kind of man should I be? And what does it mean to be a man within that? He's like, I just don't know about this dog. thing. I don't know one way or the other dog, no dog who could know. Um, and speaking of dog here, like I know I alluded to it mm-hmm. earlier, but Triskel is a wild ass dog. Yeah, can, you mm-hmm. just, can you describe Triskel for the reader, for the listener? I don't think I do. I don't know if I have the page number written down. Um, I don't well, have the from page memory. number written down. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Your perfect memory. (laughs) Yeah. My perfect memory. Triskel has like, uh, like uh, teeth as long as a human's index finger, like all of his teeth, his smile by which uh, Severian means it's like jaw, Uh right? Triskel's jaw uh, is so wide as to look like its head will fall off. Uh, And so it's like all teeth up top, right? Uh, Its chest is as wide as that of a man. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like this massive, and it's and it's like hind body behind that is small. So it's basically just a jaws and teeth delivery device. You know what I mean? That's all Triskel like is. Like a Dark Souls enemy type. And <laughs> it is absolutely a Dark Souls ass enemy type. And and that's what I was talking about earlier. This kind of disarming effect because it's a dog, but like. Sure, <laughs> I guess that's a dog, right? In the way that, like, you know, uh, you know, that's a knife. That's not a knife. It's one of those situations, right? Where it's like, I just don't know here. And it also reveals that Severian is strong as shit mm-hmm. uh, because he carries this dog, quote unquote, dog that's the size of a human being um, around, you know, in his waist beneath his cloak, like up and down a bunch of stairs, and so in like a sneaky way, not just yes. Not- oh, well, we get a straight up Home Alone scenario <laughs> with like how he sneaks Triskel in and out of the tower, which is where he's like, "Hey, let me do guard duty for you, journeyman." Yeah, and the journeyman's like, "Oh, I gotta rock a piss so bad. Let me go do that." Yeah. And he's like, "All right, take the take my cloak, take take my sword that you're not supposed to touch." In this guild of this is not a guild of thousands of people. No, this is a guild of like a couple hundred people maybe right it's very small it is very uh, uh atrophied from the time that it was before and yet you could still home alone around it you know doing hijinks with your human dog <laughs> under your cloak under your uh, cloak all of the sequence like, go ahead no he's just walking around like that uh the old guy from uh, the prestige you know what i mean <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> hundred percent. Um, all of these sequences of him nursing the dog back to health are so good. Uh, you know, uh, dipping the bread into the soup, 
so that he can he can you know eat it because without that it's too hard for the dog to chew. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you, you already talked about the the fact that like a torturer is a doctor or a nurse at the same time, um, but it just it it is it is well rendered here. You get you and this is also the trick of it, right? Like Severian is telling you the story of him as the at his maybe best early on here to endear you to him. <laughs> uh, whatever comes after, he will also have always been the boy who nursed a killer dog man back, back to health and then let, and then like lost him, you know, uh, one of the first things we learn. I mean, again, maybe if there's something that hangs over all of these opening chapters, it is Severian making connections. And then the, the thing he's connected to leaving or, or disappearing, mm-hmm. right? Voterless into the mist, Triskel into the life of uh, you know, someone else's life or care. Um, uh, we, we didn't mention this, but Triskel does show back up in this chapter after Severian has has lost him. He just like every once in a while, he'll show up for a little bit and be like, oh, uh, Severian saw him for a day and then, and then goes away and Severian never knows where he goes home to, you know, um, which I think yeah. is, is, a, is fun. Well, yeah, the the whole you're talking about kind of like the structure of what's going on here in the first six chapters. And I think the thing that's worth thinking about is that at least the shadow of the torturer. I don't know if the rest of the books, I would say this is exactly how they work, although at least the next one does. Um, they're very the lives of the saints, you know, in, in structure. It is little key moments in the history of this dude mm-hmm. uh, and in the life of this dude and moments to resonate throughout the rest of the thing. So, you know, they're all snapshots of a, of a Severian in a given moment. And I don't know how much we probably actually don't want to talk that much about Vodalus at this point, just because we don't know that much about him other than this opening thing. Uh, you know, the opening scenario in which Severian, who doesn't really know who Vodalus is, although he has like a hint, it seems like he straight up murders a guy for him to save his life. Yeah. Um, and not because he yet knows what Vodalus cares about at this point. He's just kind of moved to do it in the moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He just decides to do it. Yeah. There, there's a guy who basically is raising an axe above his head to chop down on Vodalus, who is down on the ground. Uh, and Vodalus, up until this point, until a couple minutes ago, uh, has had a fucking laser gun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's shooting at people. Green ray gun blasts going through this this cemetery. Oh, it's rad. Like, it's can you so imagine? Rad. Like, the imagery there of, like, laser blasts through the mist. Uh-huh. Very good. Uh, but yeah, uh, the, the guy raises the axe, and it's a kind of really great moment of description, too, because uh, Severia just grabs the axe head from behind, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. He's like, yoink, <laughs> and and then gets in a fight and ultimately disarms him and kills him, we are led to believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's so fast. So, you know, the, the, the setup here is that we have the Autark. Like we've got we've got some sort of system of governance. The the location that Severian lives, the nation, I guess we maybe want to call it. Uh, the is, Commonwealth, I believe, is it comes up here. Right? Yes, it's called the Commonwealth. Yeah, um, yeah. it is ruled by the Autarch, uh, and then we have Voldalus, uh, who it's like I'm gonna uh, to you know sketch this out. We already got it in the summary, but like Voldalus is like the the primary like rebel leader. Uh, vis-a-vis the autark right he is like a yeah. uh, a high-placed nobleman an exultant um who is leading some sort of vaguely described uh rebel movement uh and that is more that gets clearer as you read these chapters because when it starts out you're like who is this guy like what the heck is going on and it's only kind of in the last seconds 
Um, and I, you know, some of this is such great character writing because Severian assumes, like you, the reader, because he's writing for his contemporary audience, right? He's not writing for us. He is writing, uh, the, the document he is writing is kind of uh, him talking to the people that he presumably now rules because he's backed himself into the throne. So he's writing right. that type of story. So presumably you know who Voldalus is, dear reader. Uh, so when it comes together for me, I remember the first time I read this. Um, thinking this was such an interesting way to approach what is a very uh, typical kind of sword and sorcery story, right? This is this is the rebels and the empire in Star Wars, like big evil empire. Mm-hmm. Here's like the rebel uprising, uh, like typically like p- post Star Wars, definitely like rebels, good empire, bad. Uh, and this is much weirder because we have this rebel leader who is grave robbing for question mark reasons. Although we do have that moment later at the end where Severian says to Oltan, "Eh, just, just thinking (laughs) master librarian, if you eat a corpse, you gain its memories. (laughs) Uh, and the guy's answer, by the way, is like, yeah, and Severian is like, well, how how much of a corpse do you have to eat? <laughs> and it, are different memories in the left and the right hand? And the the librarian is like, well, think about jizz. <laughs> and that is his- <laughs> jizz, the famous genre yeah. of music from Star Wars. <laughs> 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 yes, it is very funny that Master Altan, this like 95-year-old man, is like, well, have you thought about jizz? <laughs> Damn, I hadn't. You know what? I guess not. It's like most of a person in there. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but yeah, we do get a sort of sketch. There's a there's a like a real like um almost like a Scarlet Pimpernel vibe. There's like that style yeah. of like Zorro, the the sort of masked hero inside of the the terrible regime who is actually this is not me. Those are not my politics around the Scarlet Pimpernel. <laughs> to be clear, I'm not. I was not like, oh, uh, he's pimpernelling off yeah. over here. He he's, got, he's he's going off on Austin the Pimpernel Walker again. Hates the French Revolution. Um, the uh, but, but like there is such a there's a pulpy quality to Vodalus and Vodalus's crew, and then also yes, they are st- they are grave robbing, and not just grave robbing, they are stealing corpses from from a, from a grave specifically. Uh, there is also a like uh, the 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 thing that we end up getting is is comes from the painter, right? Or the, not the painter, the the curator who restores uh, the old paintings that are no longer in. Uh, circulation at the House Absolute, which again, love the 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 incredible uh, the density of world building here is really high in the sense that it's not just oh Severian walks through a gallery of fancy paintings and he meets a guy who restores paintings. He meets the guy who has for the last fifty or sixty years been restoring the paintings that are not popular enough or in vogue enough to be up at the Emperor's Palace basically anymore. Yeah. And they get cycled yeah. down here to like what we might think of as the Winter Palace in the Citadel, except no one uses the Citadel anymore. And and you get like, you know, we're getting we're getting stuff that's wild here where it's like the paint, a painting where you can see the moon and it's the moon as it was, gray and brown instead of being green and terraformed the way it is now in in the world of the Shadow of Torture. Yeah, uh, it's a photo of the moon landing. Yes, right, exactly, exactly. I don't even know if it's a painting. Right, it, like, I think it's just a photo. Yeah. Right, I, right. I think yeah. we're to understand. And of course, the other. Oh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think yeah, I think that's supposed to be one of those moments where we understand, like, oh, Severian is looking at specifically like. A uh, like 1960s astronaut or what 1950s astronaut, whatever, uh, 
standing on the moon holding the American flag, which he because he yes, uh, this is he, he it had it had no weapon, but held a staff bearing a strange stiff banner. The visor of this figure's helmet was entirely of gold without isolates or ventilation and its polished surface. The deathly desert could be seen in reflection and nothing more. Mm-hmm. And so that's either an astronaut or the master chief. he was green and his suit was doing something strange uh i had to ask master altan about it later uh the uh but yeah i mean this is 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 true that the master chief stew jacked them off (laughs) (laughs) oh well severian let's consult the archives uh the uh uh oh, you know what we got to put in here Maddie Myers disproved this. Oh you're <laughs> right. Maddie it's Myers not did the real. research to yeah. disprove. Uh-huh. Uh the Ma- I hear that circulated all the time and it, it has been disproven. But the this is I can say definitively that that description you just read Austin was when I was like into the book of news. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like cuz I like you know I was kind of aware of it and you know I'd read these like forum posts or whatever about it and I was like oh it seems cool like you know maybe far future stuff you know like science fantasy who could know but i was reading this book and i remember where i was you know it's one of those experiences like you you know where you were when you read the thing i know like what side of the bed i was in bed i know what side of the bed i was on i know what room i was in i know what apartment i was in right like i can tell you all the sense data involved because i was reading that and i was like what the fuck (laughs) like this little guy is seeing the moon land and oh my God. <laughs> you described, like it just blew my mind. You described this moment in the, in the obituary, which people shouldn't go read. Cause I think it probably has spoilers. Uh, yes, it, it was does. hot, but not uncomfortable. The quality of the light from the lamp was not great, but the golden tone was evocative of the journey I was about to embark on. Man, I used to be good at writing. What happened? We don't write that much anymore. Not like this, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah. Wait, you're telling me that you and I don't sit down every single week and like talk about out. a 1,000 word oh, piece, and bang it out every week for yeah. a year and a half? What a good time that was. I mean, <laughs> bad in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of creative output and feeling like you have your hands on the thing, the thing being criticism or or whatever, the, the thing being a, a perspective on the world, poof. It was good. It was a good time. Anyway. I mean, like in, in, as you said, in like a thousand ways, a terrible time. Yeah, but yeah. For like a, a few hours a week, a great time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this was the moment for you. Yeah. Oh, that was the moment. That was the thing. That's like what hit me so hard. And and like, I'll never lose it, probably. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, and not in the like, oh my gosh, Gene Wolfe's a genius way. Although, like, I think that this book is really impressive. Uh, but that is such a uncomplicated um very clear, you know, in, in terms, I mean, I, I imagine you could read this and kind of miss what's going on there, right? But it's, it's in terms of an image, if you think about what you're being shown, it's it's the moon landing, right? And then they even talk about the moon right after mm-hmm, when, mm-hmm. to like, it's a moment where Wolf is being very clear, like, this is the old moon. Mm-hmm. The moon, kids. Hey, everybody, the moon, <laughs> right? Um, but it was, a, it was a thing where it was like, oh, this is like doing something. Like, this is like a wild book that... Uh, you know, oh, it's just been about a kid who's a torturer and he's his dog so far. And like, I don't really understand what's going on necessarily. And I hit this and I was like, oh, this is like in a framework that is understandable and accessible to me as like whatever, uh, mm-hmm. 18 year old or whatever, 18, 19 year old. Um, and it hit it. But yeah, sorry, I, I interrupted while you were talking about uh, the curator. Who could say what I was saying? I don't, I, don't. Uh, I think I was just talking about the, right. the winter Density palace, world the building. being. Great. Well, yeah, the density of this world building is such that we are on this conversation about about stuff instead of it just being 
oh yeah, this, I have to go somewhere and I'm walking through a cool place. Of, like, there's a little bit of that because at the end, right, he notes like, oh, the part, uh, the, the final steps that, that, that Severian takes towards the library, suddenly every painting has books in them, right? Yeah. And every yeah. painting that he passes or every picture that's been hung, there is a book somewhere in, the, in it. And like, that's fine. Like, that's fine. You know, like that's that's cute. I don't mind that. That's yeah. that's fun. But this stuff is that next level of thing of uh trying to slowly introduce you to the state of the world in a way that that uh is much more interesting than the the stuff that yeah, I we didn't really talk about this, right? But like as a teen, when I was first getting into genre fiction, I was bouncing off of fantasy. Um, and and hewing closer to sci-fi stuff. And obviously this is, we talked about this earlier, the genre space here is very complex. Um, but if I had read more fantasy that was doing stuff like this, and I know it existed because this existed when I was a teenager and there's other great fantasy literature out there, I probably would have stuck with fantasy. But but that style of store, of world building was not what I was running into. And I was instead running into you know, deep hierarchy. Like the version of this book that I would have tried to read in high school would have been like, and there were 13 exultants and here's what their lines were. And, he, and the right. armatures, of course, da, 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 da. and that's what is happening here. Do you know what I mean? Like you do meet Valer- Valeria. Is that her name? Valeria? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and yep. her whole thing of like, yeah, we were supposed to go with an old exultant into outer space, but we got left behind. And I am the only sister who is who who is my family breeds anymore. Is like, all right, oh, yeah, like, no that that <laughs> thing she says where she's like, I am all my sisters and my brothers. Uh-huh, I, I am all the sisters we breed and mm-hmm. all the sons. Yep. An old servant yeah. brought us tea in small heart. That, that's a Shakespeare <laughs> reference. I just got to say it. Okay. What, oh, what is yeah, it? that's uh, that's Viola in uh, Twelfth Night. After she has a twin brother who uh, she presumes dead in a storm, and she washes up on shore, mm. and so she says, "I am all the brothers my family breeds, and all the sisters too." Mm. Holy shit! We got Shakespeare and our wolf here. Uh, I don't know what to think God. about it. Uh, thank God, Michael's here. I've never known what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but yeah, exactly. The thing I like about this too, all of this, like uh, you know, it's when uh, Severian is encountering the people from outside his guild that I think the most interesting stuff is mm-hmm. happening, and that's on purpose, right? You know, it's uh, everything in the guild is just like. Uh, oh, yeah, it's like day-to-day life. So it actually really doesn't remark on it. It's the indoor plumbing thing you're talking about, right? right? It's right. just like, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, we go up and down the towers. It's a spaceship, whatever. Don't think about it. The bulkhead. They repeatedly talk about banging on the bulkhead. Uh, you know, that happens a few times. But uh, And smashing that kid's face up against the bulkhead. Um, but uh, what I really like about both this and the Valyria thing is that it makes it clear that the Citadel, and maybe the city of Nessus itself, but at least the Citadel, whatever this is, it is maybe a like launch facility of some sort mm-hmm. because we keep getting the pointed towers and we know that one of the pointed towers is a spaceship. So mm-hmm. these other things could be too. But what the the uh, curator tells us who's restoring the painting uh, and what Valeria implies is that everyone here is just waiting around for the art, the autark to show back up mm-hmm. like everyone mm-hmm. is waiting for the autark to return to let life in the Citadel go and do something else. Because uh, they they've been in a holding pattern for at least hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And if not hundreds of years, maybe a thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, that that everyone's just kind of chilling out and waiting for the Autark to return to use this this abandoned palace as as their primary thing. We get that from the curator. We get the in the next chapter with Altan that there is a 
uh, giant maybe ebony shelf, uh, you know, like a big cabinet in the mm-hmm. middle of the library that's waiting for one of the previous autarchs who just never showed up to open it. You know, it was prepared for him and he never did anything with it. So we constantly and, and Valeria is basically saying that all of the uh, aristocrats who are still living in the Citadel, they are all families who have come to ruin waiting on the Ar- autarch and yet they're still waiting there. You know, they could go to the House Absolute, presumably, or they could go somewhere else. Uh, and they don't because they're waiting on the autarch. So the Citadel itself is a whole social system that is just waiting on someone else to return to do something for it. And I think that is weighted. And, and you know, as yeah, you're death saying, and resurrection or resurrection and death. Right. Huh? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. Like the city, the Citadel itself is a dead thing that is everyone is telling us is waiting to be resurrected. Wolf sets things up and then pays them off. This is a thing that will be paid off. Mm-hmm. Um, can I briefly, we've been talking about, uh, uh, Valerio, I, I mentioned this gender thing a few times. I just want to hit this and like, because this is going to be one of those questions that I think we come back to, um, we are going to have a lot to talk about what Severian thinks about women uh, and thinks about yeah. men. Uh, this is a book or a, a series of books with a lot of gender stuff in them and not, not always in a way that we think is going to be you know, fun and uh, open-minded and explorative uh, in a cool way. But I also think there is something f- fun happening with Severian struggling against his own gender essentialism. Um, uh, we have Valeria who is rendered in a, in a particular mode, right? Who is like the, the, uh, caring, but kind of creepy girl next door is, <laughs> is kind of the vibe from her. Um, right. but we also have this statement early on. I think this is in the chapter about the, uh, the drownings this is in chapter two, um, uh, about you know, a few pages in a halfway in. This is why I should have a real physical book so I can tell you page numbers. You just get the version. Oh, page n- are you talking about Yamar the Just? Uh, no, I'm not talking about Yamar the Just, oh, okay. but you, you, you talk about Yamar the Just because I think that's important to put in this context too. I don't know where it is on the page. He talks about Yamar the Just. He says, Yamar uh, the Almost Just, observing yeah. how cruel women were, the women were, and how often they exceeded the punishments he had, discreet, he had decreed, ordered that there should be no women, am- or, or there should be women among the torturers no more. So this this old ex- uh, uh, autarch, Yamar the Almost Just, I believe he's an, he's an autarch. I guess I don't actually know that. Yeah, yeah it might be a master. We don't Maybe know. Maybe a master, but, but, right. Uh, yeah. The Almost Just, great. <laughs> Again, great Dark Souls boss name uh, uh, has has made this statement, and again, this is like one of these nested things. Severian isn't saying this at this moment. Emar the almost just says it, and then Severian repeats it as true because he believes it. But but it is it is repetition. He doesn't challenge it in the text necessarily. Uh, and so yeah, and there are no women torturers because Emar the almost just thought they were they enjoyed the torture too much. That he, yeah. they, they did they went harder than than the the uh, the sentences that were passed down. Um, well, it's a great. Uh, this is also a great. Like so, the just the whole sentence is this kind of complex world building again that you're talking about mm-hmm. in this layering. Uh, because the the way I I'm wrong, right? He he is an autarch. You are the almost okay. just, and the way we know that is that he has decreed it, mm-hmm. right? And right. the torturers don't they don't determine who's tortured and and or what how. is done to them, You're right? Yep. The, or how none none of it. They they receive orders and they execute them. That is all they do. They are um you know very directly on the application end and not the decision making end, and that actually is kind of a thing that's going to matter later. And so we know that he is an autarch simply because he can decree. Right. You know, and that's a thing that we learn from from the text itself. It's a great moment. Well, and but yeah, in that know, same in that same paragraph is Severian saying, you know, all the other 
guilds have men and women in the guild. There's no yeah. gender breakdown anywhere else. But for us, and the, and the witches, it seems, uh, are suggested because they split the the women who, if a girl is born uh, on from a client, or if they find a girl who is young, they get passed. She gets passed to the to the witches, and if they find a boy, they he goes to the to the torturers. The bit that I was actually thinking about is a little bit later. Um, it is in the the exact description of the swimming. Uh, uh, he says, "I've chosen to describe all of this now." Because I never again went, uh, I never went again after the day on which I saved Vodalus, went swimming in uh, Giol uh, under this. Which, by the way, they're swimming, they're swimming in the in the big river Giol, and in some sort of like like the hull of a ship or something. It's like a cistern, but it's like hard metal. It's a hull. It's a hard metal cistern. So I guess it's just like a, a, a really heavy industrial, you know, water collector, basically that they're just swimming around in. Yeah. Um, it's the dairy stand pipe. Yeah. <laughs> that is, <laughs> it is. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I never went again. Draught and and Roche, who are the, his kind of BFFs early on here, and they get they get they graduate before him. But like in this opening going, Draught and Roche are his best friends. They believed that that it was because I was afraid we would be locked out. Uh, Ida guessed, I think, before they come too near. Ida guessed, I think, as if to say, Ida understood the truth. I think before they come too near to being men, boys uh, often have an almost female insight. It was because of the nenifers, which are the the plants that he got caught up in. And so here he's like, oh, yeah, you know, boys, when they're young, they have that sort of female intuition in them still. Mm-hmm. And then the next paragraph is, the necropolis has never seemed a city of death to me. I know it, it's purple roses, which other people think so hideous, shelter hundreds of small animals and birds. The executions I have seen performed and have performed myself so often are no more than a trade, a butchery of human beings who are for the most part less innocent and less valuable than cattle. When I think of my own death or of the death of someone who had been kind to me or even the death of the sun, the image that comes to my mind is that of the nenifer with its glossy pale leaves and azure flower. Under flowering leaves are black roots as fine and strong as hair reaching down into dark waters. And it, but no, it's actually Ida because it's Ida because Ida was young and still had female insight that he could connect with the world in this deep, insightful way. What are you talking about? You're constantly doing the thing you're saying <laughs> is a feminine quality, right? Like constantly, <laughs> right. constantly, constantly doing it. And so, a thing that I'm interested in hmm. tracking. Well, I wonder here, why that might be. I wonder why that happens. I don't know. I'm interested in tracking. What is going on here uh, uh, throughout these books? What, when when gender essentialism is raised, how that yeah. maps to actual people and the actions that Severian says they take, because again, we are, we are at that point of remove, and how Severian describes his own actions. So. Yeah. I, yeah, and, and it's, uh, you know, again, kind of ideological here, right? Yes. Like, Severian is a boy raised, in a, raised entirely by men mm-hmm. who really only sees women like... I mean, very rarely, right? Like, he truly has almost no contact with anyone who is not a man. And so I think we're meant to read through, like, Severian's perspective on the world. We can backtrack a little bit to understand, like, how the torturers think mm-hmm. uh, in a general sense. And, like, you know, they're, you know, they're a guild. They're dedicated to their thing. They are, 
uh, very uh, goal driven, I guess, <laughs> is a way of putting it right. And they they are trained really heavily to put aside their emotions because emotions have no place in the the job they do. You know, they just don't. It's about executing uh, the will of someone else. And so we're going to run into in the next episode of the show uh, that, you know, the next chapter is called The Traitress. And we're going to learn a little bit about Chatelaine Thecla, and it's going to be presented as a love story that's also a torture story. Mm-hmm. Um, and those two things are inseparable for, for Severian in some ways. He, he kind of can't think those two things apart from one another because, you know, all the world is a is a torture arena, right? right? Like, it, everyone is a torturer to the thing they right. love. Everyone destroys um, And I don't think that's a thing we're supposed to just take as transparently true. That's meant to be a flaw in Severian, I think. Um, you know, like, uh oh, like maybe that's not true, buddy. <laughs> um, do we want to end by uh, spending a few minutes talking about uh, Master Altan, who is like maybe the most, uh, you know, this three, the three of us kind of guy <laughs> who's ever been put into literature? Uh, sure. Uh, so Master Altan, uh, I'll just get this out of the way, is an homage to Jorge Luis Borges. Um, uh, so clearly, I'm so glad that that's true yeah. and not just a thing I thought. Uh, Jorge Luis Borges, who was a, a, an Argentine writer uh, in the sort of like, a, you know, mid-century, um, wrote a lot of, I mean, existing in kind of this weird uh, uh, like literary uh, circles, uh, but also kind of orthogonal to what is typical genre fiction, sort of uh, very conceptual, very concerned with ideas of infinity, mirrors, uh, mirroring, mm-hmm. right? Imitation and mm-hmm. mimesis. Uh, doppelgangers. Doppelgangers. Yeah. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, and generally I would say probably like, because the, the genre word is here, I would say he's a general fantasist. Yes, Right, like, sure. and not fantasy as the genre, but fantasist in the sense that uh, imaginary things matter a whole lot, and the way that we think the world through imaginary things matters a whole lot for Borges. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, and he worked uh, his his kind of day job. You know, he was a writer and a poet, but also worked as a librarian. He was the head librarian of. Um, Oh, I think possibly like the National Library in Buenos Aires, but I don't remember precisely. Uh, And rather famously in his letter, years went blind. And so he was a blind librarian. And uh, uh, one of his most famous short stories is the Library of Babel, which is a library that is so large that it contains every possible conceivable book, like every possible conceivable uh, permutation of arrangements of characters. Uh, so every book that has ever existed or could ever exist is in this library. Uh, but also there are loads and loads of books that are truly just nonsense because it's everything uh, all the time. Um, and that's basically what we have going on here with Oltan and the way that he describes this kind of like weird library that somehow stretch is bigger than uh, is bigger inside than it is outside. Right. And that's mm-hmm. a very Borgesian kind of thing, that kind of like weird internal fractal logic. Um, and Oltan himself is uh, a very well-read blind librarian who uh, thinks a lot about books. Who stopped at some point reading the books and started reading the books. Like, stopped. There's this great ex- moment where he's like, uh, I, it came to me after a decade of reading of becoming a master or whatever, uh, where the he stopped looking at the words altogether <laughs> and started just finding truth in the in the book object 
mm-hmm. in, in some way, um, which is a, a very fun a moment there. Uh, and then and then would go blind some years after that. Um, great detail about uh, the, one of my favorite moments here is when it comes up that Severian is a torturer. Uh, uh, there's this beat, uh, there's this pregnant pause where um, it's clear that his little minion, Saibi, uh, is is kind of put off um, by the idea that that uh, he's inter- interacting with one of the torturers, or that's how I read it anyway. And oh, so yeah, Master absolutely. Ultan is like, hey, do you know where uh, you know where baby librarians come from? You know what we do? <laughs> There's a book. It's called the Book of Gold. And if a kid discovers the Book of Gold, uh, instead of reading any of the children's books, the librarians come in. They say like vampires, uh, and <laughs> and bring them away. And that kid is going to grow up to be a librarian at that point. We just take them. If they had parents, too bad. Like, well, so, they work on them a little bit, right? Yeah. Like, eventually, mm-hmm. they just kind of fade from from like social life, right? They, exactly. they get absorbed by the library itself. Yeah, it's scary. That's some scary so shit. So that's it's like we do the same shit. We, <laughs> hey, Sybe, you know, get off your high horse. Right, and that's like that's uh, such a, a a Borgesian thing, right? That's um the Zahir of the Aleph, right? The, yes, the a yes. Borges short story uh, about finding this like weird cursed object that, on the one hand, appears to be mundane, and at the on the other hand, like somehow manages to like devour your life. Mm-hmm. Shout outs to to Borges. Uh, Oltan's mm-hmm. really fun. Uh, you, you probably don't want to read about Borges's politics. Probably not. N- no, they're messy. You probably don't. Want, you probably really. want to learn more about Borges than you know. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. That, you know, I don't. I don't think his. Yeah, you should. You should read his stories. His stories are. are you can find a lot in his stories, is what I will tell you. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, and I only bring that up not to like uh, like dunk on Borges, but to be like you know, heads up. Wolf is in conversation with this guy mm-hmm. who also is a master fantasist. I mean, it is impossible, much like someone like Lovecraft, who you know is a deeply horrifying personal character, is uh, nevertheless like industrial industrially built into the genres yeah. we live and breathe in. Um, and analyzing these things and talking about them are, are critically important, right? Like uh, working through what the thing is. And so it's fascinating to me that like that Borges as Ultan is the fantasy of Borges, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the the book loving librarian who has no life other than the library, right? right? And right. that is the reference being made here. And yet Borges is like a real human being with like a whole human life. Much like Severian, right? Had like this perspective that was uh, blinkered and sometimes not complete, uh-huh. and said a, a, you know some fucked up stuff. Um, but nevertheless, is like you know this this person. So um, that that uh, is infrastructural. Well, to, I mean, to this whole project, I was going to make a joke about like what, well, and I I bet Master Oltan also has really bad uh, beliefs about indigenous peoples. Um, but what I actually want to say is like an important thing to think about all of. All of the characters we've met thus far, except for Vodalis and the Vodalari, uh, is that they're all functionaries of the state, right? Like, right. they're right. All, every one of these guilds is in service of the Altark. That is the breadth of Severian's world. Um, it is. I mean, I guess there are there are there are unnamed civilians who live uh, outside of the Citadel, where he sometimes goes to swim or hang out, and they all throw old soup at him and trash and waste and garbage. Um, but not, but never so much that, that they would actually get in trouble for it because they're all also afraid of, of yeah. the torturers. Um, uh, and it's like, okay, well like that's an important thing to think about here is every perspective here is tied to, uh, 
the institutions that keep the autarxy functioning in some way or yeah. used to yeah. and are you know vestigial at this point in some way but still exist in that in that relation you know the relation has outlived the function in some cases yeah and that to me is like kind of the formal thing going on it's why i mentioned the lives of the saints earlier right. right there there's this thing where all of the characters that severian meets who most of whom he will never see again you know mm-hmm. there, there are a few characters who are going to appear over and over throughout the book, but we are going to pass through like a couple dozen people who we see for a chapter and then they disappear from the plot forever. Right. You know? mm-hmm. And, uh, and part of that is that they have a, a, a function, right? You know, they are genre characters. They are things that are spun up for a very particular interaction for Severian. And then they are dispensed with, and that is happening both in the narratorial level, right? Severian is only bringing them up to tell us about what he thinks he learned from them or, or the insight he thinks he got from them. And we might sometimes interpret those insights differently. And then from, uh, from Wolf himself, right? They, they have this very kind of, um, uh, stories along the way to the grander story, uh, function for him. The autark, uh, the autark has a use of these people mm-hmm. as this kind of functionary, and the author has a use for these people, and both the author Severian and the author Gene Wolfe. And, uh, you know, it's not every piece of literature or every, you know, book that you can read and be like, the author is playing with this, mm-hmm. right? Like, that, because that's just not the interest of most people. That's not how most people write. Certainly not how most people are interested in reading. Gene Wolfe is someone who repeatedly talked about wanting to do this. Gene Wolfe is doing this, right? He understands this layered thing. And so when these people are summoned up to be caricatures or pieces of a person or one-dimensional people, Saibi is not a character, right? Saibi <laughs> is a minion. <laughs> he is there to be like, here, 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 I have oh. your candelabra. Uh-oh, I hope you die one day. Like, that. that's... His- I mean, he doesn't even get to talk, right? <laughs> no, but barely. Also, I think he says two sentences. He is also a minion... The, he's a minion in a really depressing, tragic way because yes. he wants to be a character so badly, but <laughs> yeah. Ultan will not fucking die or retire. So he can never <laughs> get promoted to master or it's not even that he just won't do it. Right. Cause like the master, there's a ceremony. They talk about like, Oh yeah. Whenever it's springtime, we do our big parade and that's our graduation ceremony. And you could just feel Saibi just sweating. 60 years old, still assistant man. Like Dwight Schrute is here uh-huh. and is the assistant to the manager who is Ultan. And you just, you're stuck here, bud. There is no upward momentum for you. Go get me those three books. Thanks, Bob. And Wolf keeps being like, and Saibi's getting older. You know, like every time <laughs> yeah. he has the opportunity to be like, and his hair is thinning a little bit. Like a you know? Jane Austen or, character, you know? Like, <laughs> like he's slipping from his, his youth. Um, right. I have an important question. And so that, you know, that's just so wonderfully put together. Yes. That's all I'm trying to say. You I know, agree. and all the layers are are being evoked, like bang, bang, bang. After that, um, and it's I think that's really delightful in this chapter. I have two important questions. One is from this chapter, and one is broader, and they're both of the same quality. The first is, are these rats? Do these rats really have language, or is, is he being poetic here? <laughs> Once or twice I saw evidence that the rats had been nesting among the books, rearranging them to make snug two- and three-level homes for themselves, and smearing dung on the covers to form the rude characters of their speech. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I By mean, the way, they're just little rat people. I mean, this to me... Yeah, why not? <laughs> like, because I'm me, right? This evokes to me uh, uh, the rat people from the, the broader Lovecraftian mythology, right? 
this is a creature from Lovecraft's scope, uh, specifically um, Dreams in the Witch House. Uh, there's a character in there named Brown Jenkin who's exactly like, it's like a little rat person who would do exactly this kind of thing. Uh, second yeah. second important question. I'm, I'm here, I'm down with that. Does Master Palaimon have, I think it's Palaimon. Is it Palaimon? Uh, I'm a Palamon yeah, guy. I was, I was a Palamon, yeah. Okay, I, go to, I mean, there's an E in there. Is that not pronounced okay it's fine not to me okay i guess not i can mispronounce anything that's uh, no fair. issues here uh master palamon palamon how are you saying this pokemon what is palamon palamon like pokemon yeah, but palamon. palamon i believe there is well, a digimon Pal. named palamon that makes sense master palamon pro- wore the, sa- the sable trimmed cloak and velvet of his rank and i suppose that these or the protruding optical device that permitted him to see must have frightened her he has like cybernetic eyes uh-huh. or sam fisher night vision goggles on Oh, he's got a Jordy LaForge. Yes. He's got a Jordy LaForge. Uh-huh. He's got a Jordy LaForge. Okay, I got gotcha. you. That's what I think. I, yeah, I mean, I, I don't so. know, but that, that's my assumption. He's he's doing the Jordy LaForge. Trying to imagine it here. Right. Well, and and it, uh, in the Ultan chapter, uh, Severian notes that Ultan touches his face the way that Plamon, Palamon sometimes does too. I'll get it. Yeah. Palamon. You can say Palamon. It's okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's all. Those are my other ones. Was what do you think his cybernetic eye situation is? And a Jory LaForge is a fun answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I that that to me is the more fun of all the possible. Instead of a Sam Fisher, which is not fun. Uh, you know what I mean? Like that's that to me is like I if there's something that is anti Tom Clancy, it is Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. <laughs> right? And so I just have to believe that uh, it, it's not a Sam Fisher, but in, instead something cool and sleek and like hyper futuristic. Uh, that no one gives a shit about. See, but I love the idea of it being the Sam Fisher. I actually love the idea of it literally being the pre-order special edition Call of Duty night vision <laughs> goggles that have been retrofitted <laughs> as cybernetic eyes to see in the dark or to see it all, I guess. Uh, I get it. Maybe it isn't. But but to me, that is part of the dying earth fun shit here is when you realize they're in an office building or something, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's cool. It's cool. Um, I'm trying to think here about if there's anything else that we need to say that is plot critical here. Um, but maybe not. Uh, is there any last lingering thoughts? We just got a couple from Austin. Michael, do you have any last lingering thoughts or notes that you made that you want to talk about? Uh we might want to say that sometimes this book is called a science fantasy, which yeah. is the genre that it is in. Uh, ah. we, if you have not been reading along or paying attention, you have noticed that uh, we've mixed together a whole bunch of like weird far future stuff with a bunch of like weird fantasy presentation. Uh, and this is this is like its own unique like subgenre within uh, typical SF and F fiction uh, where that is about mixing elements of fantasy and science fiction to various ends. And uh, I'm just going to flag that here because I think it's a thing that we can continue to talk about as we learn more about what the precise situation of this world is. Well, and like that is part of the joy of it. Like, I think that we can talk about this book in a lot of different ways. And I think that given that what we're doing is a media criticism podcast, we we are likely to formally bias ourselves towards talking about the big cool ideas that Wolf has about narration and narrators and the author function inside of the work itself and metafictional stuff and thematics that tie to his Catholicism and the political perspectives in this, in this text and all that. 
part of the joy of reading it is also being like Vodalus has a ray gun. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 uh, the torturers have a cool broad headed, uh, carnificial sword, this kind of executioner's sword that they use that it's, it's described in cool metal ways. And, uh, I think that it is, it is, perfectly fine and in fact encouraged to find the joy in all of the sick shit throughout this book you know oh yeah it's sick as shit i mean the thing about Vodalus having the ray gun it's not just that he has a ray gun which is cool like by itself but it's that he is wearing this like you know almost like 19th century central europe you know uh aristocrats garb right yes. you know he's got a cloak on he's probably wearing a hat of some sort with a feather in it i imagine yep, yep. you know he's he, he is decked out to go do grave robbing you know in his finest aristocrats gear and he whips out a ray gun and just blitzes some dude with a sword with it and then hands that off and he hands it off to his number two dude uh-huh. and his number two dude hands it off to like the gal who's with him right you know what i mean and she's ready to like blitz people right yes. so we get that and then he's like oh fuck these dudes are coming let me get out my sword cane <laughs> and then he whips his sword cane out of his cane oh. and starts beating their ass which implies that he came to this place with a cane he's walking the <laughs> graveyard doing graveyard shit with a cane in his hand because he's cool and an aristocrat right like that is cool to me that but he's also the stuff. anti-aristocrat because he's he the is. revolutionary guy he we, is you know? and it's so important that we leave that chapter after being like, I can't wait to get more voterless because that's young Severian's perspective too. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Ugh. Well, uh, uh, Severian immediately is like, I'm a Votalari. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm a Votalarian. Right. And he's like, oh. <laughs> he says in the narration, he's like, I didn't really know much about this at the time, <laughs> but like, I saw, I saw the rebel leader, and I was like, yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> it's like being like, holy shit, it's Luke Skywalker. Well, I guess I'm doing this now. Hundred yeah, percent. Like, you ever see a man so beautiful you devote your life to betraying the empire you serve? Like, yeah. sometimes you do. Yes. But also, I mean, it is that kind of thing. And like, not to, I know you don't want to talk about Star Wars, but like, it is the kind yeah, of thing that if Star you're Wars. just like some fucking guy right. and a dude whips out a laser sword in front of you, you will be like, well, I guess this is the dude, right? Like, <laughs> yes. I farm dirt all day and there's a dude with a laser sword over here. Yes. Hundred percent. He's my guy. God, what is Vodalus thinking in this moment? It's such an absurd, incredible moment. Vodalus about to have to fight this guy with the axe, and then a kid grabs the axe by the blade <laughs> and pulls it away and kills the guy for you. And then he's like, "Oh, I'm an ex. I'm an ex account from the Torturers Guild, and I'm uh, uh, I'm a Vodalari for life." Throws up the too sweet NWO Wolfpack symbol. Like. That is- <laughs> He's like, uh, I'm one of the thousands. You don't know how many more. What are you talking about, Samaria? Yeah, he has no idea. And then, I mean, Vodalus does a thing that is so, if you put yourself in that perspective, it is so rational. He's like, please take this this pocket change I have. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Here's a token of my thing. And, and for Severian, it's like, he has given me the symbol of the Vodalari. Yes. I am in the club now. It's my secret decoder ring. Mm-hmm. And I, for Vodalus, it seems like it's just like, this is what I had in my pocket. It's some money. It's like, some have money. some money, you murdering child. I have to get back to my spaceship. He, like, <laughs> he then disappears into the fog and flies away in his silver flyer, sharp as a dart. And it's like, yeah, I mean, if I'm if I'm Severian, I am also joining up with the Vodalari. This is the best moment of my, of my childhood, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Everything about it is cool. 
right? Uh, and so, so that yeah, like, I, it is it is the thing that I think lifts the work from the other types of science fiction fantasy stuff that I'd read. Uh, you know, as again, when I bounced off of fantasy stuff, it was a lot of the this first stuff that I thought was cool. But then this is the book that says we believe that we invent symbols and spends a page and a half digging into what it means to have this coin for a young Severian. And it's the blending mm-hmm. of those two things that makes this such an interesting book for me, you know? Yeah, so. and again, you know, it's very much, I, it, it is Wolf, I think, you know, and it's not to, biography is not destiny, mm-hmm. the reality of the work is not wholly determined by Gene Wolf's person, right? Like, it, we don't want to say that, but there is, to me, it's why I keep bringing up the lives of the saints, right? There is this kind of, like, the saints are important figures in Catholicism to reflect on and think with and align yourself with and invoke, like, they, they are important in that way, and they also just had badass things happen to them, right? <laughs> And they often died in horrifying ways. I mean, that's part of the whole deal, right? But, like, they did things that were superhuman and wild as hell, and it is in in considering them, and it's also, you know, the whole thing in Christianity of considering Christ and Christ's suffering, right? Like, that whole deal is thinking, wow, like, to encounter a thing that is so beyond the pale of human reality will change your life. And, like, mm-hmm. seeing a dude with a ray gun who flies away in a spaceship will have that kind of effect on you, right? Like... Uh, so I think it's a formal thing going on here, too, of the types of stories. They are both reflective and important, but they also have just cool genre shit. And if you are a medieval Catholic thinking about someone being pierced with arrows is, is your version of, you know, flash forward to 1980, thinking about Luke Skywalker, right? Like right. those things, I think, in Gene Wolfe's mind, you know, or we can Boromir, be dismissive of that. please. <laughs> or, or Boromir, right. Oh, 100%. <laughs> Check out the bonus episode when we when we do the Lord of the Rings. Get on Patreon.com slash Range Touch because we're going to talk about Borom- Boromir for a full 40 minutes, right? <laughs> like, there's no way that we don't. I, I, I you know, uh, to, to borrow a phrase from you and, and from many other fans of, a, of, of an activity that, that I don't pay much attention to, Austin, I'm fucking marking out for Boromir <laughs> every day. I'm a Boromir guy now. You are, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, Stan so anyway, Boromir, I do. Boar hive. What is the what is the Boromir Stan? <laughs> the Boar hive. <laughs> the Boar hive is pretty good. I can't uh, wait until pretty- uh, what is it? Sort of the Lictor when Severian encounters the Boar hive. <laughs> the Boar hive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, it's all a callback. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention here, I had in my notes uh, here, are two things that I think are cool and similarly. He talks about when he's in the Triskel chapter, and he's like taking Triskel deep in the basement where no one else can find him. Uh, he says that uh, down in the basement, they have lights that are meant to burn forever, mm-hmm. but yeah. some are burned out. And that's cool. Uh-huh. That's cool. Like, that's just a cool little sentence there. And also his like transition to talking about uh, corpses and jizz with Master Oltan <laughs> is that he says, uh, this is on 46 for me. Um they're talking about uh, a book that can contain all books, right? So I opened the book at random and read, quote, by which means a picture might be graven with such skill that the whole of it, should it be destroyed, might be recreated from a small part, and that small part might be any part, end quote. And so he's talking about a hologram there, right? Mm-hmm. And But then he says, I supposed it was the word graven that suggested to me the events I had witnessed the, on the night that I had received my Chrysos. <laughs> Master, I answered, you are phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then he starts talking about eating corpses. But what I actually thought about there is like, you know, Jean Wolf, hard to know how deeply you're supposed to read sometimes. But there's something fascinating to me about uh, the not the linkage of grave and grave robbing. 
but the linkage of the hologram with Vodalus, mm-hmm. um, of in any individual, Vodalus is the Vodalari, the many thousands might be summoned up. Um, right, and, sure. and thinking of the revolution or of whatever political thing that is happening on in the Commonwealth as holographic, you know, as you said, almost all the characters we meet are functionaries, right? From each of them, the autocracy might be recreated. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, I'm thinking about the CLR James uh, line, Mm -hmm. you know, about cricket, right? You know, from each of them, cricket might be wholly reinvented because they all knew the the game so well in the colonies. Um, But then, but then also the Votolari side of it, right? From each of these people. And maybe this is just me being like, uh, you know, so deep in Assassin's Creed, right? Because people in Assassin's Creed are repeatedly like, you can kill everybody, but you can't kill an idea. Uh, but I do think like the there's something going on with that here, right? That mm-hmm. like all the pieces of the world order and the world revolution are scattered and from each individual, they might be made a whole um, like a holograph, mm-hmm. which is pretty yeah. cool. Uh, and, and also, of course, the other the other thing there is the very, very, very specific or very, very directly is the engraved faces or face and rever- whatever the reverse the on the tail of the coin. I forget what is yep. on the tail of the coin. Is that mm. where the weird arms are like the ship and, and stuff or is that on somewhere else? No. Yeah, that's in the tomb. That's yeah. on the tomb. It's like a, it's a rose. Out. A spaceship and something a else. Fountain. I'm sure Michael knows this. A fountain. It's a rose, right. a spaceship, a and a fountain. Yes. Yeah, a, fountain. Yes. a spaceship volant. But the face on the on the on the coin, the androgynous face on the coin, engraved yet again. So again, gender feelings uh, uh, throughout this thing. Mm-hmm. Gender, not feelings. Gender expression. Gender uh, statements happening throughout this. Uh, notions. Expressions. Yeah, notions. <laughs> expression is too. She loves gender notions. <laughs> Um, one okay, one other last cool thing, and um, then we're done. And then we're done. I'm looking at the list here. It looks like there's 86 more cool things. <laughs> um, a moment suffices to describe. Okay, so he's talking. He's talking. This is in chapter. What chapter is this? I don't know what chapter this. Is. It's one of the ch- earlier chapters. Um, it is. It's actually after he says he adopted the the, the arms above his mausoleum door. Uh, not his mausoleum door. He's climbing into the mausoleum. And then, yeah. and then hanging out in one of the coffins, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and he's like occasionally frightening himself into thinking that the like anti-votalist police are going to come get him. You know? <laughs> yes, and he goes in there and he lays down in one of the coffins, and then just like thinks about stuff. And one of the things that he keeps coming back to, he says, two thoughts that were nearly dreams obsessed me and made them infinitely precious. The first was that at some not distant time, time itself would stop. The colored days that had so long been drawn forth like a chain of conjurer's scarves come to an end. The sullen sun winks out at last. The second was that uh, the second was that there existed somewhere a miraculous light, which I sometimes conceived of as a candle, sometimes as a flambeau, that engendered life in whatever objects it fell upon, so that a leaf plucked from a bush grew slender legs and waving feelers, and a rough brown bush opened black eyes and scurried up a tree. Uh, which one also has this holographic thing, right? That all life carries all other types of life inside of it, and that they mm-hmm. could slip between those types if, if you know, if this one particular type of life 
could could shine on it. Uh, and two is is coming back again to the Catholicism, to the death and resurrection, or sorry, to the resurrection and death. Um, and uh, you're going to get the Catholic school Austin uh, here re- recurringly, probably. Um, uh, and I, there is, there is, these are. These are the the descriptions of what Severian is is thinking on here that I, I if Severian is not outright lying to us about his perfect memory, the way he describes visions like this that he obsesses over is really interesting to me because if he is someone who has a perfect memory and is someone who can recall, uh, specific details of his life whenever he wants to. I think we should make special pay special attention to when instead of recalling actual past events, he is saying he's dreaming of something or that he is yeah. thinking of something. And I think that those are are interesting things to zero in on. And there will be a number of interesting dreams and visions and stuff as we go forward. So Yeah. And that's why he calls himself specifically he uses the word insane. Mm-hmm. Right. And Correct. that's just like a thing you have to accept is that he believes he experiences insanity. And one of those reasons is his perfect memory. And the other one is that he sometimes claims to have a have difficulty distinguishing between what he imagined and what happened because he remembers them both equally. Right. And similarly, when he's dreaming and having these fantasies or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I think that's important. I don't think there are very many times in the books that I can think of where that is used in a kind of blunt way of like, uh oh, something that did not happen is what Severian, you know, is claiming occurred here, right? Mm-hmm. But I think what's what's critical is what you're pointing out is when does he choose to surface imagination versus right. when he chooses to surface, you know, the facts of what's happening materially in front of him. Uh, that's where we need to focus that question of dreams versus reality. There are ways of reading this book, which is like, what's in Severian's head and what isn't? And I actually don't think Do that not care. Is a, yeah, I don't think that's a useful lever for working this out. What does Severian believe about a situation versus what's really happening? That's important. How does Severian choose to narrate the situation versus maybe what we can infer happen through other context? That is important. What's real and what's not? That that I think is a is a bad road to go down uh, for basically any kind of media analysis, but well, especially this book. All right, all right. Well, we did it. Yeah, do we end it with my poem? <laughs> Patreon.com/slash/range/touch. We don't do any advertising. I don't read an ad to you. I don't tell you about cars or televisions or anything else that people would not pay us to talk about. <laughs> I don't tell you about like dietary supplements. I don't tell you about any of that stuff because because that's what I touch. do. So I have a- <laughs> <laughs> I'm not selling you teletherapy. I'm not doing any of that. Okay. It's because Range Touch is entirely community supported. It is 100% uh, Patreon supported. So if you enjoyed this show and you want to hear bonus episodes of previous things that we've done and the bonus episodes for this show, uh, the first of which will be out in one week, uh, which is on the Lord of the Rings, 1978, Ralph Bakshi uh, directed version of the Lord of the Rings, which we have a lot to say about. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch in order to support us there. You should also rate the show uh, five stars on whatever platform of choice. Uh, that you choose to do that. That would help us out a lot. Uh, We only spread by word of mouth. And so if you uh, hit those stars for us, that helps us with some algorithmic stuff. But really the thing that actually moves the needle is you telling people about the show. So if you enjoyed listening to this and you want other people to hear it, and more importantly, you want us to keep doing it, 
which is, you know, uh, inertia is a big thing, and people love when things keep going. Well, if you want us to keep doing it, uh, you need to tell other people about it so that uh, they will listen to it, and they will tell other people, and so forth, uh, on into eternity until the heat death of the universe. Um, so if you could do that for us, that'd be a big deal. Get on Twitter, get on Facebook, get on Instagram, get on TikTok. Um, for this show, we don't have the capability to enrage teenage Dave cosplayers, so you're really going to have to get some... Uh, organic maneuvers going on here of response to the show. So you don't think there are teenage Severian cosplayers still? I hope there are. Good God, if you have ever, if you have ever uh, uh, cosplayed as Severian or anyone from the show, or you know anyone who has, please send us the photos. There, there's nothing I want more than to uh, see what that could look like. Because notably, Gene Wolf creates Severian to be cosplayable. I have no idea what that would actually look like in practice. <laughs> um, it's barely a costume, but we will talk about that over the next couple episodes. Patreon.com slash range touch. Thank you so much for listening. And we will be back in uh, two weeks in the mainline feed here uh, with the next several chapters of Shelved by Genre, which I will tell you what they are right now. We will be back reading chapters 7 through 18. So we, we went pretty slow for this uh, for this episode, but the next couple episodes are going to be moving pretty quickly. And basically, we're going to do three or four episodes per book uh, all the way through Earth and the New Sun. Um, so we've got a good six months or so in these books. Um, so buck, uh, you know, buckle up for the long haul. And we've got some movies uh, on the bonus feed just to give you a hint of those. We're going to be doing – I've written a list down like – the Road Warrior, in case you like that movie. We're going to be talking about The Dark Crystal and some other stuff, uh, you know, in that 80s genre film uh, universe that we all like so much. So anyway, we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening to the show, and uh, we'll be back soon. Amid these stacks so straight and tall with tomes lined end to end, how are you to find your way? It's shelved by genre, friend. Shelved by Genre is produced by Jordan Mallory. The podcast art is by Sam Beck, and the theme song is by Cinderwell. You can learn more about all of these people down in the description below. He messes up everything. You can't you can't call it a clap cast then. It's gotta be a count cast. This is exactly the problem. That. Yeah. It sounds like you're uh that vampire from uh <laughs> Transylvania? <you> no. <know. laughs> nah, Sesame Street. Oh, the, okay, other place. the other one. Yeah. There's uh, probably a Sesame <laughs> Street in Transylvania. We don't know where Sesame Street is. Have you thought about that? No one <laughs> says, not? oh, trans, uh, you know, uh, Sesame Street, not in Transylvania. Right, it's just it somewhere in America, mm -hmm. theoretically. And Transylvania is effectively America. I'm sure we have troops there. Well, it, but I, we don't even know if it's America. It could be, in, you know, in the way that we have like those little German villages. You know what I mean? Like yeah. replication places. <laughs> it could be a, like a little sure. New York somewhere. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. Jordo, you can put that at the end of the show. <laughs>
<laughs> this is all captured. All right.